Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Uh, Rocky and I are here to talk about the DC books for the week of September 14th, 2021. Got about 11, 12 books out this week. Uh, again, sort of Batman heavy, but I don't know. We were kind of talking before we recorded here. Not, I don't know, not a great week. And, and I don't know. Yeah. I just felt a little let down. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't. I, mean, I, I agree with you. It, it didn't feel like most of them were were particularly good. I think a lot of the. I think it was a little bit too Batman heavy too, but uh, but you know, there's only three or four highlights for me. But the highlights were pretty high for me. But the lows were pretty low. <laughs> yeah, I sort of feel like the the cool things that we've been liking about Batman we didn't really get. Like we didn't get a true fear state issue this week and I'll, I'll we'll talk about that a little bit uh, when we when we get there um but yeah kind of and, and even the books that i expected to be good they were still good but they weren't great so i don't know kind of weird but anyway we'll dive right in with batman 89 this is issue number two it's from sam ham who's one of the screenwriters on the, the batman 89 movie joe quinones is handling the art uh, leonardo ito does the colors clayton cowell on letters uh, you know, I talked about it last time. I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Michael Keaton as Batman or the Batman 89 because I'm not a big Tim Burton guy. Uh, he just I don't care for his film. So it's a personal choice. You know, I understand that a lot of people love Michael Keaton in the role. I sort of feel like Michael Keaton as this older Batman that supposedly we're going to get in the Flash movie. I actually like that a lot more than the idea of Michael Keaton in 1989 playing uh, Bruce Wayne. So I don't know. I, the more I think about it, the more my favorite Bruce Wayne is is actually uh, Ben Affleck. He's he's sort of taking over for Christian Bale, who previously was was my favorite. Um, but that's not to say that Michael Keaton did it didn't do a good job. Certainly better than Val Kilmer or uh, who's the other one, George Clooney, uh, which was pretty pretty terrible as also. Um, but it, it's almost like why are they even calling this Batman? Because all along this has been Billy the Billy Billy D Williams story. Right. It's been first issue and second issue. It's been all about uh, Two-Face, you know, uh, and well, actually, he's not quite Two-Face yet. He's Harvey Dent, but he's about to become Two-Face, as we see uh, on the last page of, of this one. So it's kind of strange. Um, Tim Drake as Robin. That's kind of weird, too, because obviously that doesn't feel authentic for any kind of Batman 89 or Batman 90 movie because Tim Drake didn't even exist. Uh, you know, back then in, in that iteration of, of Batman. So you're going to have Tim Drake. And again, this, this comes after the Burton movie. So technically after Batman returns with Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Danny DeVito as Penguin. So before Chris O'Donnell Robin, which wasn't, you know, a very good Robin either, but Tim Drake as, as Robin, I don't know. It just feels weird because you're pulling something from so far in the future. And I get that this is its own thing in its own era, but it, that, Thing. It just, I don't know, it didn't work for me. Although that being said, this Tim Drake that we're getting here um, is much more interesting to me than the Tim Drake that we have in the regular DCU continuity. He's got a little more of an edge to him, uh, and I, I kind of like that. Uh, the Barbara Gordon, her dating Harvey Dent, I have mixed feelings about whatever, but I, I like her characterization as well, and I still have no idea who this, like we talked in the past uh, when we did the first issue about how Joe Quinones must have uh, an actress in mind that he's, uh, you know, illustrating her as. Maybe he doesn't, but it feels like he does. Uh, but I don't have any idea who it is. I don't have any idea who the Tim Drake is either. Um, 
So all that to say, this was okay. You know, again, it's just not my favorite Batman sort of world, um, but but it's okay. And I'll be happy when we can sort of dial down all the, the Harvey Dent stuff. And, and I guess it sort of makes sense when you think about the Batman uh, 89 movie. It did focus quite heavily on the Joker in the first one and then the Penguin in the second one. So why wouldn't, you know, if there had been a third movie, why wouldn't it focus on um, Billy D. Williams becoming Two-Face? And then maybe we'll get a, a little more actual Batman because I feel like we hardly got any Batman in this second issue. So uh, anyway, what did you think of it, Rocky? Uh, I, I, I didn't mind it. I, I thought it was a little bit, uh, you know, like you, my favorite Batman is Ben Affleck. The, the, I've never made any bones about that, but I've always liked Michael Keaton. Uh, I, I will, I'm going to give uh, writer here, Sam Hamm. What he does a really good job here is that this is written better than any of the movies were, to be quite honest. Like the Batman... <laughs> Batman 89, both the, both the original Batman and, uh, the, the sequel, the, the Michael Keaton Batman movies. This was actually, this is actually well written. This is actually a, a Harvey Dent that is actually going through somewhat of a, sort of a career crisis. He wants, he wants to help the people. He's got a hate on for Batman, but so at first he appears to be sort of like money hung, you know, he, he appears to be very career orientated, but he does, he does actually care for the people and he even sort of he discovers that the more he he puts the people ahead of his own selfish self-interest he finds that he actually gets farther ahead at the end of here in his career so he he's sort of having an internal struggle here and at the end of this issue uh at the end of this issue he does uh go to rescue tim drake in a fire because he think tim drake is caught in a house fire only to ultimately be succumbed to uh uh, he ends up getting, I guess, knocked down, and ultimately he gets knocked down near some radios. And I think the the acid from the the radios or whatever is going to ends up burning is will end up burning his face next issue and having an impact yeah. on his his makeup. I think, I think they're car batteries. Car batteries, or sorry, yeah. look like look like yeah. car radio. I thought they were they looked like car radios or something to me, but yeah, that makes more sense. Because <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, I I didn't quite figure that out, but but yeah, the acid from the car radios it makes sense, but um. Story-wise, uh, I, I, uh, writer Sam Hamm is a good writer, continuing to develop the relationship between him and Barbara Gordon. I like that. Uh, I like that Drake got his name Robin in this story. By uh, he gets the name Robin because he 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 is mistaken as somebody who's robbing the store, and he's he's stopping the guys who are actually robbing the store, and uh, and uh, you know he <laughs> for for whatever reason. You know, they're saying like you'll stop the robber, and he ends up being called Robin of all. Th uh, and so it's kind of hilarious how he yeah. kind of has gets the nickname of 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 Robin, and of he yeah, he's he just gets, wearing a hood and he's trying to help. Yeah, like, he gets uh, accused of of doing some robbing. Yeah, so they get come up with the Robin. <laughs> So, yeah. sort of the Robin Hood. So it's yeah. I kind of like the way that's sort of done. I, I like uh, I like Bruce Wayne's struggle here between uh, vigilantism and philanthropy. Uh, Alfred gives Bruce Wayne some good advice. You know, when vigilantism fails, go to philanthropy, and that's what Bruce Wayne does here. And and in fact, we see the very same thing happening playing out in the pages of Nightwing with, uh, uh, in of course, a different continuity, but with Dick Grayson creating a foundation with uh, with his billion dollars that he inherited from Alfred's estate. Uh, you know, philanthropy can go a long way to, in terms of helping a city. You don't have to become a Batman. You don't have to become. <laughs> and uh, I like this. One of the things that happens at the beginning of this is that Batman screws up. Batman in trying at the very beginning of this story, he ends up he ends up getting shot at 
because he's he's escaping and and when the cops are shooting at him they end up you know accidentally you know some innocent civilians end up getting hurt because they get caught in a crossfire between the cops trying to stop Batman and that stays on Bruce Wayne's mind and so I think Bruce Wayne's heart is with Harvey Dent in terms of um, the idea of that better to have a city that doesn't need Batman or that can survive on its own without having to have vigilantism uh, in their city but uh, in any event there is some politics in this uh, Harvey Bullock uh, gets upset with Harvey Dent because uh, because uh, Harvey Harvey Dent is sort of betrays the police a little bit because Harvey Harvey Dent gives a speech about helping the people about uh you know s- struggling on his mission about uh he talks he gives a speech about uh inequities two-tier justice systems kids growing up afraid and it this you know he implies that maybe the cops could do better and so Harvey Dent himself is going to is is already creating for himself perhaps some enemies and this is really great character development overall the relationship between him and Barbara Gordon is as well is is really well well it's well versed well scripted and the ar- artist Joe uh, Qu- Quinones it does a pretty good job coloring's pretty good if you're again if you're a fan of of Batman 89 i think this is actually uh, the the quality of this writing is actually quite good and dare i say it's better than <laughs> than than i think i am batman <laughs> yeah another batman title i i really like sam ham here he's done a lot of work in here and i like his originality with tim drake and it, it really works it comes off quite well i like it great uh well speaking of i am batman that's the next title we're going to talk about uh it's i am batman number one the beginning uh, written by John Redley, Olivier Copiel is the artist, Alex Sinclair on colors, Troy Petrie does the letters. Now, I had thought that I Am Batman, for some reason, I thought it was part of, of Fear State. It's actually not, but what doesn't make sense to me is there's a, a point or, you know, early on, the first couple pages, when Luke Fox is, is going down and talking to Vole about his, um, his Batman suit being printed, and we get some insight into how it's so much better than, than previous. It's got a, a layer of non-Newtonian fluid. So if you're not familiar with what that is, it doesn't translate movement. You know, think of it in the Marvel universe as like uh, vibranium, right? But this is actually real non-Newtonian fluid. Doesn't it, it doesn't, you know, the whole idea is Newton's law, like something that's in motion will stay in motion for a reaction. There needs to be a, an equal and opposite reaction. Well, this kind of defies those Newtonian laws. So that's why they call it non-Newtonian. <laughs> uh, so that's that's kind of interesting. He's got graphing um, uh, gloves, which are supposedly 100 times uh, stronger than steel that have batons tethered inside him. Now, here's where it gets interesting. His faceplate is made with a military-grade biohazard filter that should help if and when the fear bomb goes off. So when I read that, I was – and again, in the back of my mind, I was thinking this tied into fear state. And then I hear this fear bomb, but – if that's not the case, this doesn't seem to to tie in at all with Fear State. In fact, this is in that possible future uh, timeline of, of Future State. Then why are they – I mean, did the Scarecrow not get defeated at the end of Fear State? Like I didn't – that didn't make sense to me. Uh, so I wasn't yeah. quite sure how that was all supposed to, to play out. Um, the Olivier Copiel art, I mean – 
he is a master artist most of the time, but this doesn't feel like his best work to me. This felt really rushed. Um, and I don't know if he purposely was trying to make it feel sort of gritty. The art is, is really dirty at times. Um, on just about every panel, it looks like there's ink splatter uh, on the panel. And, and I know supposedly at, at times it's purposeful, like when uh, – Jace Fox is, is, you know, driving along on his, his cycle and there's bullets being fired from automatic weapon and they're impacting the wall and it's supposed to be like debris flying up off the wall. And I get that, but it's like on every single panel, nearly there's like ink splatter and it just makes the art feel messy. And so, you know, when you hear Olivier Copiel, I expect really high level art and I don't feel like this reached that level in terms of the line work in terms of the storytelling is still very, very good. Um, but mostly what I felt was bored. Like I'm not invested into Jace Fox, despite reading all the second son, Batman stuff, all, all the, the Batman stuff that John Ridley has done so far. I've read all of it, but it's still, it's not, a, he's not interesting enough. You know, I've talked in the past about it sort of feels like, Ridley is trying to take the Fox family and, and turn them into this really important corner of the DC universe. You know, I compared it to the, the show Empire, uh, which I've, I've never seen, but it's just that soap opera feel, right? Where it's, it's Jace Fox, it's Tim Fox, it's Luke Fox, it's, it's their siblings, it's their mother who works in the DA's office and their father who's, you know, head of what used to be Wayne Tech and now is Fox Tech. But guess what? At no point, have I ever been shown anything that makes me think I should care? Like, why should I care about the Fox family? Like, all I've seen is is some illogical sort of backbiting and some just some nonsense. Like, I I am not invested in them. I don't really care. I like Lucius Fox well enough, but as a supporting character, not any kind of lead character. This to me is missing the hook that it needs for the Fox family. Tell me, John Ridley, why I should care about the Fox family. Because right now, I really could not pick, care less about these characters. So I, I, I don't even know how much longer I'm going to stay on I Am Batman because I, I thought this was incredibly boring. So uh, I don't know. What did you think? Well, I'm I'm going to be a little bit more, uh, uh, I guess, forgiving of this than you. Uh, first of all, I I really like the art, man. I <laughs> I. I just, I just like the art. I, I actually, I think I like it maybe for the same reason. It, it just seemed to resonate with me. I, it, it really feels, it, it does feel that there's an epic feel here. I, when, when Batman is, is facing off, like, first of all, the story itself establishes that we're, we're, it's been six years since Batman, Batman's been missing for six years. That was established. He mentioned that when he was looking on, and this is one of Chase's earlier, this continues from, issue zero so this is actually six years after batman's final appearance so um i i share your comment that i'm still not really sure how does that really fit in with future state and if it's if it's six years since batman's been gone this must be a different universe because surely dc's not going to get rid of bruce wayne for six years so that just doesn't really seem to mesh well so uh but i don't want to i don't want to blame writer john ridley for that I can I can imagine that Bruce Wayne is gone for six years and Batman's gone for six years. Just I want to get into this story, and right off the bat, it's really interesting that he because in the in the early pages of this story, 
the the uh you know Jace talks about Jace is his father's son. Jace is in a boardroom. He's put he talks about faking his sincerity to to fool his father, uh Lucius Fox to make himself look more like a businessman and and to, you know, make his dad think that as close as he thinks they've become uh, he, his dad maybe thinks that he's forgiven him for his past actions, but, but he hasn't. And just, you know, and John Ridley is trying to establish Fox tech as, as being basically Wayne tech, that Fox tech is great. Even without Wayne, you know, Lucius Fox is great, even without Wayne industry. So I can appreciate what John Ridley is doing. He's trying to establish some agency for the Fox family that they're not, they're not beholden to the Wayne, to, to Wayne industries. And in fairness to that idea, Frankly, Bruce Wayne was always in many ways uh, uh, better because he had Lucius Fox working for him. Lucius Fox was an integral part of Wayne Enterprises. And so with the with Lucius Fox finally finding some agency and now his family getting that, I can kind of see that. I agree with you that I'm not sure, you know, because, you know, Jace Fox here talks about sort of utilizing, he's clearly appropriating the, the tech that his dad used and to prop up Bruce Wayne as Batman, and now he's using it, and he's using it for his own methods. Uh, you talked about the different weapons he's using, the his his high tech armor that's a, a non Newtonian fluid, uh, which I'm assuming is to help prevent you know ricochets of bullets off his chest, and uh, his burner, and he's got his 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 utility belt's not sophisticated; it just contains burner phones because he doesn't want to get caught by the magistrate. And so this is the beginning. This, this, the title of this is I Am Batman, The Beginning. And so this is really him when he first gets started. And I don't think that's going to be clear to a lot of readers because we've gotten, we've gotten digital Chase Fox's Batman. We've gotten I Am Batman already. We've, we've gotten those Bat, this Batman stories. We've gotten future, future state Batman who is Chase Fox. And now we're going back to the beginning, which I kind of, you know, we, we kind of jumped in the middle of it in future state. This is messy and it's it's really unfortunate. I don't want to fault John Ridley for all the messiness. Um but at the same time it's the cross that he bears, man. <laughs> and because he bears it, uh, one of the questions I had is I couldn't remember who the bad guy Seer was. This Seer guy is spreading conspiracies throughout the city and I'm thinking I'm still my mind is still caught up in 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 the scarecrow and the magistrate, I completely forgot who this seer guy is spreading conspiracies. And so it's sort of because of the mess that the, that the messiness of the Batman continuity right now, I'm, I'm not fully able to fully appreciate getting into the world that John Ridley is building here. And I'm not going to fault a hundred percent John Ridley for that. Cause I think maybe he could have gotten some help from DC editorial, but uh, in any event, uh, th- this, he does a good job establishing the uh, Chubb and Whitaker are a couple of uh, cops that are detectives that are they're they're really good. They talk about uh, they talk about uh, you know everyone hates the government and they're lumping cops in and there, there's a little bit of politics here as well that I think actually comes off quite comes off quite well. And uh, ultimately, at the end, uh, Jace ends up investigating, uh, and this is from issue zero, an individual by uh, named Vince Farrell. Who owns this warehouse where Vince found the the bodies in the in the in the zero issue that uh, we reviewed, and he ends up going there, and uh, that well we'll see that next issue. In any event, seems a little bit 
I agree with you that we don't really know what's at stake here. I'm not really sure what what the big deal is. How is this guy really a bad like like he he's just looking for a couple of people that were murdered and and then suddenly these two cops Chubbs and Whitaker find uh, a dead body at the end of the issue. They find a dead body uh, wearing uh, an anarchy mask from the character from the uh, from the villain uh, Anarchy, and I guess. I guess somebody's killing masks. And again, it's the same trope that we keep getting over and over with Future State. We know that the magistrate is killing masks. We know that, we know that, we know that. And it's it's really getting to be a dead horse. This dead horse keeps getting kicked again and again. And I hate to say it, but this is kind of a storyline and a plot line that we've seen repeatedly. And unfortunately, we're going to be seeing it again in other books we're going to be reviewing, including Gotham State, uh, uh, Future State Gotham. This is this is a storyline that I just want to end already. I'm this this whole future state. I even feel I'm sorry. I feel long winded even talking about it. I'll just end this by saying that I'm I I enjoyed I like the art here. I thought it was kinetic, action packed, but I'm not sure that this is necessarily going to pull a bunch of people in. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, as far as the seer goes, I don't even have we seen the seer before. Has, has I, it been mentioned? I Honestly, even... I, I don't remember, and I never had enough time to go back to issue zero to to see if we did. But I, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'll as a reader, I always take some blame if I can't remember something, right? Maybe, maybe it is there, yeah. and I just have a poor memory. But it it also tells me that if I don't remember some uh, uh, the so called villain in a piece, I kind of like think, well, maybe it wasn't much to remember. You know, that's my own bias, but. But yeah, I, I, I think know. this might be the first time we're hearing about it. But yeah, I could I could be wrong. Uh, and I I did do a search, and there is no DC Comics character called the Seer. At least not enough of something about a DC Comics character called Seer for it to show up on like DC's database or anything. So yeah. uh, anyway, on to the next Batman book because uh, you know it's just Batman's universe and we're all just living <laughs> in it. Uh, it's Future State Gotham number five, uh, which you mentioned Hunt. The Batman Part 5, Warmonger Games, written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver. Art by Giannis Melogiannis, lettered by Troy Petrie. There are no colors. Uh, there is a backup feature. Uh, I don't know if this is a backup feature that was printed somewhere previously, but it's written and illustrated by Raphael Grampa. So uh, I'll let you go first on this one, Rocky. What do you think? Future State Gotham number five. Uh, I really like the. Uh, there's that one alternate cover here. I'm not sure who who draws it, but it's it has the the the. I guess the what is it? The white rabbit. White it's, rabbit. Yeah, Rose Besh is the Rose artist Besch. on that. It's, it's a really that's a gorgeous cover. I I haven't uh, bought a single issue of Future State, uh, a physical copy, but I I just might buy this one just for the cover. I actually like that white rabbit on the cover. She's a, it's a sexy character, and I I have a nice little collection of uh, sexy woman covers. So I mean. You know, there's a Pyrian fanboy in me that I'll buy. I'll buy a book every now and then just for the cover. But uh, so it has the it, it meets the sexiness requirement. But in any event, uh, it's uh, the one thing that really depresses me about Future State Gotham. I'll, I'll I'll just say it is, I've I, I thought the first few issues that were so bad and the the black and white in the art just never resonated with me. And I couldn't believe Joshua Williamson was the writer on this. And you know, I'm reading issue five here, and frankly, the writing keeps getting better and better. Now, it started off terrible, but it has gotten better and better. That issue five, we're now finally at a level where 
this actually isn't a bad story here. I just wish it was colored up. And this is where my bias is. I like American style, or I guess Western North American style comic books, you know, with, with color and a certain style. And, and, but this, this story is actually fairly decent, but it's still completely drowned in the universe of future state, which is a future that it can't really happen. I don't see ever happening. So I'm stunned that we keep getting this story line. I, I just, but in, in any event, uh, this is, this is in the future, I guess six, maybe 10, 15 years in the future. I'm not even sure, but it's the future, future, it's the, in the future where Red Hood is working for, is working undercover for Batman. He's infiltrated the magistrate and he's, he's Peacekeeper Red. So Red Hood is Peacekeeper Red and, and he, at, this issue starts off with him fighting uh, the Batman, Jace Fox, Bat, the Batman, the new Batman. And Astrid Arkham has, uh, Astrid Arkham was the one that was initially using Mad Hatter technology to control some of the actions of people that were using masks. And this other character by the name of Warmonger shows up. And he actually ends up fighting Astrid Arkham and he wants to use the hat attack to control. And he's, he's kind of a psychopath and it's kind of interesting. And I, just to summarize as quickly as I can, Warmonger is actually the, an original prototype of a peacemaker. That's what it was revealed that way back, even Simon, one of Simon Saints, I guess, earlier experiments, even before Sean Mahoney, who is Peacekeeper One, one of his one of Simon Saint's earlier experiments was actually this warmonger character who was deemed to be a failed experiment because basically he was too psychopathic. And but they didn't want to kill him. Uh, they just basically left him frozen on ice. And of course, naturally he gets, you know, released at some point, and he's a psychopath and he's the warmonger. And uh in in this in this particular issue. Uh, ultimately, Jason Todd, as Peacekeeper Red, discovers the frequency. He realizes that he can control all the people being controlled through the, these na this nano, this hatter tech in people's blood can be controlled, can be hacked into with a with a right kind of frequency. And he discovered that through Astrid Arkham, and that's they ultimately end up, you know, overcoming uh, overcoming this warmonger, but but he escapes, and um. Now, so what they do at the end is they realize that Warmonger now knows the secret that he's got to hack into this frequency because all these all these people have this hatter this hatter tech in their bloodstream or whatever in Gotham. So he's got to go, but he he needs a more powerful uh, antenna to amplify his own frequency to take control of people. And so he's going to go to magistrate headquarters in Gotham. And at the end, the only way that they can infiltrate. The headquarters is if, is if, uh, Peacekeeper Red, i.e. Red Hood, arrests and brings into, uh, arrests the new Batman and, uh, brings Batman in. And of course, it's all a facade, but that's what they're going to do. Meanwhile, Nightwing and the rest of the group, they don't know that Jason Todd is actually undercover for Batman because Batman never told them, or rather Bruce Wayne never told them. And so they don't realize at the end that even though Jason Todd is bringing in, uh, is basically bringing in the new Batman, that in fact, that's all a ruse, uh, probably just a ruse in order so that they can infiltrate the magistrate headquarters to destroy the antenna to prevent Warmonger from implementing his master plan of 
sort of controlling the actions of, of, of mass mind control of all of Gotham. That's kind of what the story is. And it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not, not a bad story. I mean, I guess it's just, it just feels like I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm just not into it, you know, but I, I can't say that it's, this is a bad story per se. This is actually one of the better paced issues, but I don't, the art is even better. The art's kind of grown on me. The, the backgrounds have gotten a little bit better. I thought Oracle had an interesting, uh, new look. I thought, uh, yeah, I would actually be really curious to see these characters in color to see, to see how they would look like. And with a with with a really great colorist, put Jordi Belair on there or Alex Sinclair or something like that. I think this would look probably very interesting if it was colored. But uh, in any event, um, you know, people are going to forget about this because I don't think anybody's reading it, and I don't think it's going to matter. That's the sad part. But uh, I don't know, man. What did you think? Yeah, I sort of agree with you um, in that it's it's definitely gotten better. Um, I mean, it, the problem is it's continuing the future state storyline, right? Which we didn't like and don't care about in the first place. What I do like about it is the fact that it, it is spotlighting some some bat characters that that don't really get a spotlight very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the argument could be made this is, you could call this Red Hood in the future or something like that. We're getting um, Arkham Knight, Astrid Arkham. We're getting, you know, lots from her and that's interesting. Um, I would almost say it's a more interesting Jace Fox here because we're getting to see him interact with known members of the of the Bat family, so that's interesting as well. Um, yeah. And I, and and I also will give credit for Culver and Williamson not dragging out the um, the mystery of you know who who set the bomb off that that Jace Fox is getting um, blamed for. You know that explosion in the middle of, of Gotham city, I almost call it Neo Gotham, <laughs> uh, yeah. Gotham city that, that was shaped like a bat. So yeah, it, it has improved. The problem is at least for me, it started at such a disadvantage. It was so bad to start. It, it sort of had nowhere to go, but up, I mean, I guess it could have stayed just flat and, and been terrible, but even though it's improved, it still is barely an average comic, you know, in terms of, of idea for, for story. You're right in that the pacing is pretty good. It's probably the high point of the comic. Uh, much like yourself, I prefer my artwork to be to be colored, at least in superhero comics, or at least in a in a Batman comic. You know, if it's if it's a, a comic that was never colored from the beginning, you know, like something like Walking Dead, then yeah, you you sort of expect it. But when it when it's a Batman comic in the DC universe, I sort of expect it to be colored, and it's. And it's not, and I don't, I don't understand that decision um, at at all. <laughs> I think that there are probably people that are not picking this up that are traditional DC comics and Batman comics fans that may not be picking it up purely for that reason, purely because um, it's not colored. So uh, it's okay. Uh, you know, I wouldn't tell anybody that's liking it that you're, you know, you you shouldn't like it or it's definitely improved over time. Do I think it needs to exist? I still don't think it needs to, to exist. I think <laughs> the sooner we leave behind the entire future state, all the storylines, all the, it, it, as soon as we just forget that future state even happened, we're not reminded of it by things that happen in the story. We're not reminded of it by having titles that have future state in them, the better off DC will be. So I still think this needs to go away. Um, yeah. So, 
uh, I guess we'll see. Uh, all right, up next is Justice League Last Ride number but five. Is, we 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 missed one. Oh, wait. Yeah, there was a backup back. feature. Yeah, called. I forgot about the backup by Raphael Grampa. Raphael Grampa's art here is is as detailed and as crazy um, aesthetically as it ever is. But as far as the story, uh, apparently it's the Joker sending the same people out on the same mission over and over and over, and he thinks it's funny, uh, I guess, with rats and bats and sending these ne'er-do-wells to attack the mansion of Bruce Wayne. Um. I guess I felt it. the story was just as pointless as what the Joker is trying to do to send these people out over and over to do the same thing. Well, there is misdirection. And in, in fairness, the, the misdirection is that it's not actually the Joker. I, I, and I, uh, it's really? actually, it's Alfred dressed up like the Joker and they're setting a trap uh, to, lure, to lure the people, to, to deliberately get them to rob Wayne Manor so that Batman can take them out. So it's not actually not, really the Joker. I did not get that. But yeah, it was not the Joker. If you well, I'll, I'll I'll bring the page up here because at the end, uh, Alfred wipes the makeup off. He says, "Master Bruce, the rats are in the trap." He's on the very oh, last. Panel. He yeah. wipes the makeup off as the Joker. Gotcha. Yeah. So I mean, I thought it was in that regard. I thought it was. I thought it was kind of interesting, and I thought the the art was was actually. This is actually black and white art that. It, it had a particular style style to it that I actually kind of enjoyed. I actually yeah, was far more think. intrigued with this story than I was the previous one. And I kind of liked the ending, how I thought it was actually kind of a nice little trap set there by Batman. He was getting sick and tired of, rather than him trying to think, you know, get them in the act, he figured why not just tempt them by having the Joker do it. And 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 I love the fact that the Alfred that Alfred knows how to act like the Joker so well that he can pull it off. <laughs> yeah, and again, I think this is probably a reprint from a Batman Black and White. So when you talk about black and white art, this is meant to be black and white. Although the argument could be made that Mil Milo Giannis's art is supposed to be black and white as well, it just doesn't work as well. So I did not catch that at the end with with Alfred. Um, I, I guess I just thought took that as Alfred being nervous because. There were people coming to attack uh, the manor again. Totally my bad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, on to the next book, Justice League Last Ride number five from writer Chip Zdarsky. The art is by Miguel Mondoca, colors by Enrica Angiolini, and letters by And World Design. A uh, lot of action in this one, Rocky. What'd you think? Um, uh, sorry, I'm always I'm always got it. I chips. I'm 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 really enjoying this series. I'm really enjoying this series, and uh, th this one can continues to impress me so much. I thought we finally got some. Uh, we, we got more. We got a lot of substance in this issue. I I actually quite in. I really I quite enjoyed it. I uh, I love the fact that uh, you know there's right away we right out of the gate we know that. What's happened here is the Justice League, many years ago, they lost Martian Manhunter and, and Aquaman uh, in a battle against Darkseid. And they're still recovering from that psychologically. The relationship between Superman and Batman is strained. And, and then and all of a sudden, they, they come across this, this responsibility of taking care of Lobo and making sure that they want to make sure Lobo is going to stand trial by the United Planets. But 
there are a lot of people that want to take Lobo out. And the best way to hide, the best place to hide Lobo is on Apocalypse. But Apocalypse is burned out. It's a burned out planet because the, the only way to defeat Darkseid back in the day, uh, it resulted in Martian Manhunter giving up his life. But they, they it essentially, it resulted in, in Apocalypse becoming a dead planet. And, and all the engines, I guess, that, uh, that powered Apocalypse were essentially burned out. And so they're hiding out there with Lobo and Flash and Superman are there. And of course, they discover that it, Brainiac and the Manhunters and the Cyborg Superman are, are all there. To, they think that they're to, to, to get Lobo, to kill Lobo. Um, and I love how Superman and, and Flash react. You know, it's clear that they've done this before. Superman says, you know, maneuver 39. They all these, I'm sure, obviously they have, I guess they have these code numbers and words for actions. And uh, Superman, I mean, the art here by M Miguel Mendonca is just fantastic. Colors by Enrica uh, Angiolini, fantastic. Superman slams down under the ground. Meanwhile, Flash comes up behind him and creates tornado winds. And that combined with the impact of uh, that Superman creates with the creator just creates a massive attack against Cyborg Superman and the Manhunters. Just epic. And so that battle is waging on. There's bounty hunters there to, to take to, to get Lobo. Meanwhile, Green Lantern is talking with Green Lantern is talking with uh, Batman and they're and they notice they notice they're they're actually on Apocalypse and Batman's plan is well the only way to keep people off of Apocalypse now is that they got to re repower up the engines of Apocalypse. You know they shut Apocalypse down, but the only way to to get these people uh, to get people away from Apocalypse is now to power up Apocalypse so that their defense mechanism of Apocalypse kick in and that way they'll be protected and they can protect Lobo. Uh, now. What's interesting on that front is that, uh, and I never noticed it, I noticed it before, but Green Lantern has a different outfit than we're traditionally used to seeing him in. And it, it shows flashbacks where Green Lantern was battling Darkseid on Oa, where Darkseid was trying to destroy the central power battery. And, and we see that play out in this issue. So many epic scenes going back and forth. We have Wonder Woman battling Mongol. And I just love this. I love that the, the impact, it looks violent. I mean, kudos to Mandanka on the art. This looks like violence between Wonder Woman and Mongol. And Mongol tells her, like, Mongol isn't even there for, for Lobo. He's just there because he wants to pick up the scraps of Apocalypse. So clearly somebody has, has, is just spreading the word. Somebody knows that the, that the Justice League is on Apocalypse and they, they just want to create chaos. And so some people have an agenda that has nothing to do with Lobo. Some bounty hunters are there for Lobo. This is chaos and the Justice League has to do with it. And they're separated. We got Green Lantern, John Stewart, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman battling Mongol. We got Flash and Superman battling Cyborg Superman and the Manhunters. And, we got so many th cool things going on. We got Batman and we got Batman and Green Lantern trying to power up Apocalypse. And what I, what I, I mean, the, the, what I love here is the is the kinetic, just the, the kinetic energy from panel to panel, from page to page. You really get a sense of of the cinematic sort of battle scope of this. I I I just love this. Uh, I was captivated by this. I particularly was fascinated at the end where as they're as they're trying to bring Apocalypse online, 
one of the doors in the in the rooms that they're in, it, it sort of activates and it opens, and it looks as if there's clones of Darkseid. There's multiple tubes in it, and it looks like Darkseid was trying to clone himself. And what's so cool about that is they got to be careful now because if they power up Apocalypse to keep the people off, to keep the villains off from coming and get them on Apocalypse, you might accidentally power up the very system that's going to create another clone of Darkseid. At least that's what I think's happening here. So <laughs> I, I think this is, I think this is awesome. This is just awesome. And, and the, and, and Hal Jordan fighting, fighting, uh, Darkseid in the past with his, with his willpower. I mean, the scenes are just, just epic here. Character moments between Batman and Superman after Martian Manhunter dies, Superman picking up Batman by the throat, them having an altercation. Uh, arguing with each other, Wonder Woman interrupting him, telling him to get their act together. They got, they got, they got a universe to save. This is just epic. Amazon's in action, kicking butt, taking names. I mean, there's so much going on here. I don't know how anybody can't read this and love it. And I'm loving this. You know, Wonder Woman screaming to, uh, screaming to uh, one of Dark Side's, uh, I, I, uh, to Stephen Wolf, you know, Apocalypse is dead and they're gonna, they're gonna take him out. Meanwhile, Dark Side tries to destroy the central power battery and ultimately it's Hal Jordan who is dressed differently in the past with his traditional suit. He clearly does something with his willpower to either save the central power battery or become it himself because ultimately it ends with the, the power battery being destroyed. Uh, with Darkseid saying Darkseid is, but I'm not sure what happens, but man, <laughs> I'm so, I love this. I, I love this. This is, this is my, my comic book of the week. This, this was my favorite of the week. This was just plain sheer fun. I'm, I, I'm, I've just been loving it. You and I have been in pretty much, you know, there's been a couple of hiccups on my end on some of the issues, but for the most part, I've been enjoying this and I, man. Tell me you enjoyed this as much as I did. Yeah, it was pretty damn good. Um, it's hard to find any fault with this story. It's just so fantastic. And and it starts with the art from Miguel. You know, he, he's been just knocking it out of the park. Every issue, there's some sort of eye candy in here. For me, I loved the mashup of the cyborg Superman, Hank Henshaw, with Brainiac. You know, that put the little Brainiac glowing lights on the Hank Henshaw Plus, turn his skin green, and it reminds me a little bit of the old uh, composite Superman, which was a mashup of, of uh, Superman and Batman that had green skin. It reminded me of that little nostalgia there. Uh, I, I did also notice that Green Lantern, you know, from the start, has had this different costume. And it, in a way, it reminds me a little bit of Parallax, how he's sort of armored up. So you wonder how much he was, you know, maybe damaged or injured when the power battery exploded. Which, what a crazy cliffhanger. But what's so interesting about the cliffhanger that Zadarsky does, it's a flashback. We've already had this happen, but he leaves <laughs> us on a cliffhanger from a flashback. I can't, yeah. I'm sure it's happened before in a comic. Uh, I can't recall off the top of my head it happening, but it's it's pretty cool. Um, when I saw the uh, the clone army, uh, that's what I'll call it, of Darkseid, uh, I was pretty interested because what I'm hoping is that, because I thought the same thing you thought, well, what, uh-oh, if they power up, uh, apocalypse back up are these clones going to grow to maturation and and be a threat but then i thought well how cool would it be if if maybe they're just physical clones and they don't have any sort of 
Darkseid's in, in personality or intelligent or consciousness, could they actually use them as sort of an army, a Darkseid army to, to help fight off the army that um, that the Hank Henshaw slash Brainiac uh, hybrid is, is bringing? Um, the, the only nitpick, and, and it's super tiny, uh, it's a super tiny nitpick, this seems like a lot of effort for Lobo. And, you know, I've talked before about how I'm not, you know, the biggest Lobo guy or whatever. It just, it's like, really? All this for Lobo is all I can think? It's like, really? So, uh, but yeah, this is a fantastic story. And, you know, it's 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 not Black Label necessarily, but it certainly isn't in continuity that we know. It's obviously at some point in the future, maybe you could think of it as a possible future, much like Future State. If you're going to tell a story that's a possible future, this is the way you do it. Don't have it tied to anything in the past. You know, this is just stands on its own. It's an instant classic. It's fun. It's going to read exceptionally well as a, as a trade, you know, all collected. I don't even know. I think it's six issues uh, if I remember it correctly. So we only have one issue to go and it's just, it's been fantastic. And I I give so much of the credit to Miguel Mondoka in terms of making it feel epic in scale. Uh, We know Zdarsky's telling a fantastic story here and he's bringing emotion to it with the losses that the Justice Leaguers have uh, endured in the past, and and you know why they weren't even together as a league to start. So he's bringing that that trademark uh, Zadarsky emotion to it. But in terms of the scope and the scale and just the epicness of the story, uh, I'm going to give Miguel like so much credit for it. It's it's absolutely fantastic. And this is, I mean, the last two issues I, I didn't think he could necessarily top himself, but like there are so many pages in this story of original art that I would, I would love to own. Like that last page of the story with the central power battery exploding with page right before where it's starting to crack. Uh, I mean, those are just fantastic. Even the page with uh, where we get our first close up look of the Brainiac uh, cyborg Superman mashup is fantastic. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's hard to find fault anywhere in this art. It's just been, it's just been great. Um, and and well, very well paced also from uh, from Zadarsky. So give him uh, a lot of credit for that as well. Yeah, it's been a fantastic, yeah, fantastic story. I I don't know that I'm going to give it my my book of the week because uh, I think there's another one that's also really deserving. So uh, I'll I'll hold hold that in reserve for now. Uh, all right, up next we have uh, Batman Urban Legends number seven. Uh, in frustration, I will say that DC Comics did not give us in the preview a a credits page, so I can't read off the the credits in whole. So we'll just have to cover them as we as we go through. The first story I felt was the best story of the issue. It's Batman Beyond called Wake. Jackson Lansing, Colin Kelly are the writers. Max Dunbar as artist. Sebastian Chang does the colors. Aditya Bitakar in letters. Uh, and basically, this is Bruce Wayne dying. And this story is going to lead into a new Batman Beyond title, which I thought was really, really interesting uh, because it's a, it's a departure. Because not only does the the elder Bruce Wayne, who's been a mentor for uh, Terry McGinnis, pass away, but the entire Batcave and mansion is destroyed. Um, and at the end, we do get the uh, little blurb that says, to be continued in Batman Beyond Neo Year One, coming in April 2022. So quite a ways away. And I imagine that this is going to be the same creative team um, that's going to give us this title. They're probably already working on it. Um, 
as far as the villain itself, I, I thought it was kind of tropey and cliche. Basically, what happens is supposedly because of all the systems and technology and what have you that Gotham City itself, that Neo-Gotham has in the future, Gotham City itself becomes sentient. And Gotham City itself kills the elder Bruce Wayne. And Terry McGinnis, it, it is kind of showing him, uh, showing us his detective side as he goes out to try to ask questions of, of people and try to figure out who killed Bruce before it all kind of clicks in place and he figures it out that Gotham City itself has become sentient. And he has a chance to take out this this artificial intelligence of Gotham City at the end. And he, he chooses not to. Um, he chooses not to sort of kill the living Gotham because, you know, there's a scene with Bruce where Bruce is talking about how he always carried vengeance in his heart. Um, and it's probably what was his weakness as Batman. And, and T Terry's already outgrown that because Terry still has goodness in his heart. And that's, you know, so, sort of a, a foreshadowing of him not, um, not killing the, not outright killing the the AI, but then he does blow up the cave and the mansion. So maybe the AI is dead. Maybe not. Probably not. Obviously, they went through the uh, this pretty long story. So it's, uh, it's a full length story, full length uh, issue uh, of establishing this Gotham as a living thing, as a villain. So it's probably going to be one of the big bads in this Batman Beyond Neo Year One. Uh, I just wonder. I'm I'm not the biggest Batman Beyond. Uh, guy, you know, I, I like him well enough. Probably the most I've read of him it was in the the Future's End a weekly series, but I never have read on a regular basis the uh, the Batman Beyond series. But I do know that a lot of people love that it had the older Bruce Wayne in it, um, especially in in the cartoon. So now that the older Bruce Wayne has been taken off the table, he's not there to mentor Terry McGinnis. I wonder how much that's going to bother Batman Beyond fans, and if it, it will cause any issue. Uh, in terms of of sales, will will fewer people jump on? Um, I, I mean, I have no idea. The, the art itself by Max Dunbar, it's a little more stylized than I'm used to seeing his art, um, but I think it works very very well. Uh, very primary colors, which sort of suit that sort of cartoon origin that that Batman Beyond has, and and gives it a classic comic book feel. Uh, the only complaint that I have, and it's it doesn't have anything to do with Max Dunbar's art. Uh, per se. It's just something I never understood with Batman Beyond. How is it that his mouth shows up? Like, are we to believe that the costume like sticks <laughs> to his lips, but his teeth? I, I, I never yeah. understood that. Why I, does I his mouth know. show? It makes zero sense to me. Um, so anyway, uh, I thought it was, I thought it was okay. I guess if you're a Batman Beyond fan, you probably really, really loved it. Um, I thought it was definitely above average, and I'm not a Batman Beyond fan, so uh, I'll leave it at that. What did you think, Rocky? Uh, I admit that I, I have. Um, I, I actually, I'm. A, I'm gonna just fall on my sword here. I, I read this twice, and I, I'm still confused. I, I actually, I read this twice, and I had to find out from you that that a computer had taken over, and that a computer had killed Bruce Wayne. I had, I didn't know that. I never. I, I think you're right. I, that makes more sense now. I just I thought this was uh for me uh I'll fall on my sword of course I always will if more people understand it than me then obviously that's something I just have to <laughs> reread it for a third time but I I found this to be a little confusing I I didn't agree 
I, I'm not a fan of Batman Beyond. I, uh, I it was I read Future's End and it was uh, it was so terrible that I vowed never to read it again. I never never really have. But I, I've I've read this. I, I I don't agree. I don't believe that a future Bruce Bruce Wayne saying that the moment he picked up the gun, you know, he Batman died when he picked up the gun again. Uh, so basically, this is a Bruce Wayne who has failed in his mission, who failed, uh, who picked up. This is this is esoteric, philosophical nonsense in my mind. You know, this future Bruce Wayne, you know, telling this Terry McGinnis in the future that, you know, in it's it's just ridiculous as if he picks up a gun and he used a gun at one point that somehow he's that corrupted him and and then advising him. And then he's not going to he's not going to kill an A.I. that is villainous and can be everywhere and that he his value for human life now extends to artificial intelligence if if that's if assuming that even was the case uh i didn't buy it i and 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 i also think it's stupid and i don't respect terry mcginnis that's just utterly stupid he's putting he's put in an artificial intelligence ahead of human life shame on him i just i don't i i this this just didn't this didn't work for me i don't like this character and when i read this i don't have a reason to like terry mcginnis to be honest with you, I don't respect the decision he made. If that's the decision he made, I also, I mean, frankly, I don't think it's clear in the writing exactly what happened. Uh, he says at the end, "You're in my ear. This is a closed channel." And then he's talking. "You're in the cave. You killed Bruce." I, oh, I guess. Yeah, I guess it was him. So now, I don't know. So he had a chance to kill the computer. I, I guess. I, I, I don't know. I. I I don't like it. I, I I just don't like it. This is, I mean, how many times does Terminator have to be, uh, do we need to get a sequel to Terminator before they realize that people don't care about destructive AIs anymore? This this is a dead horse, Batman Beyond, and now they're going with this as a plot line. I'm staying, I'm just staying away from this. I could care less about this. This, this. this is going the wrong direction to get me interested in Terry McGinnis. And frankly, I mean, now now they've killed off They've killed off Batman in the future, and so he's he's failed in the present. He's failed in the future. He's going to go missing for six years. I don't know. This whole thing just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I mean, I just you know, sorry. I just <laughs> and then and then Bruce Wayne saying that my father feared me. Come on, like I just I I don't know. This is an old pathetic old man that uh, he he's dying in a state of depression. I mean, he should have been on Prozac before he died. I mean, this is. This this whole thing just rubbed me the like the whole thing was just nonsense to me. I, I I'm sorry, you know, you know, art was fantastic. Max Dunbar, truly, the art was really really good. The art kept me engaged, uh, and I even read it twice and I enjoyed reading it twice because of the art. But I still didn't really get a handle on the story. I don't relate to these characters. I don't understand this Bruce Wayne. I don't relate to this Bruce Wayne. This is depressing, and I've got no desire to read Batman Beyond after reading this. Sorry to say. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Next story is uh, called The Executive Game. And I just now noticed for the first time that it says Damian Wayne Batman 666 in The Executive Game. It's from writer Tim Seeley. Uh, Juan Ferreira does the art and colors. Becca Carey on letters. The art is absolutely fantastic. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize it was Damian Wayne until much later in the story. Um and the way you're confused about the first story is the way I'm confused about this one. Uh, I would have been much less confused had I, has I, had I realized it was Damian Wayne sooner. Um, so basically, Damian, you know, 
Gotham City, they should have thrown a year on there where it says Gotham City Restricted Zone would have helped. But basically, Damien attacks this um, this building, uh, the Pelagus Tower, which apparently there's some sort of android something or other that, that guards it. And then he fights various supervillains, none of whom we've ever heard of, on his way up to the top, I guess, to talk to the executive, which I sort of and I, I'm guessing here, I'm sort of taking to be um, much like we just had some kind of a, a computerized artificial intelligence or something or other that's protecting Gotham City or running Gotham City. Could it in fact be the future version of this uh, AI of Gotham City that we saw in the first story? I, I, I don't know, but it first appears to Damien as, as Alfred and then switches in, in an instant to Grayson and then in an instant from there to, to Bruce Wayne itself. And then Damien complaining that uh, I, you know, I've been alive. First of all, he, Damien pulls no punches. He talks about the fact that I always plan on being a different Batman and he literally kills those supervillains on his way up there. And he's still alive because despite the fact that Gotham has, has fallen and despite the fact that enemies have died before him, He's he's still there and he'll be you know alive forever and blah blah blah. Um, I didn't see the point of this. I didn't understand it. Uh, it just showed that Damien's a piece of crap in my mind. I didn't need to see that because I already know Damien's a piece of crap. Um, but just like you, in the first story, I did enjoy this because the art was absolutely fantastic. Um, but Excellent, yeah, right? it didn't, it didn't make much sense to me. And again, I missed that in the title that where it said it was Damian Wayne, because I didn't understand why Batman was killing, literally killing all these villains, even to the point of using machine guns on a drone, um, to kill these villains. Uh, and I did think that there was one villain loveless, which I thought had an interesting design because she has a, a like a bleeding heart on her chest. That's black instead of red and it's upside down. Uh, and there's like blood dripping off of it, but Damien kills her, you know, completely without mercy, just like he does everybody else. Um, but I, I don't know. I didn't see the point of this story, all, all this to go to talk to the executive. Um, and, and, you know, he talks about how Gotham has fallen and, you know, he's, he's going to be there forever. And it's, he's got all these sins and he, he would not buy back his soul. Even if he could, if he was going to use his soul, He's going to use it to buy back something else. And, and apparently what he's going to use it to buy back is a chance to get more revenge on the Joker. Is that what? Yeah. I, I don't well, know. I can it, tell it, you. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't my, like it. Well, my interpretation of it is, and I, I, I did find this, <laughs> ironically enough, I, I actually found this more clear than the Batman Beyond story. <laughs> and I might be wrong. Straight up, I might be wrong. But I thought the executive is the devil. The devil is not AI. He's the devil himself. Because okay. uh, in the this is the Damien from the 666 storyline, which he sold his soul to the devil in order to uh, make Gotham a safer place. But of course, the irony here is that by selling his soul to the devil, Gotham doesn't become a safer place. It becomes basically a shithole. It becomes a terrible place to be. And But Damien is... And, and the devil even tells him that. And But Damien doesn't care... Damien is so filled with avarice and hatred and he's, he's embraced the seven deadly sins. This is Damien at his worst. And at the end, Damien doesn't even want to buy his soul back. He wants to buy the Joker's soul back 
and the Joker's soul comes back at the end, uh, and when and and they actually witness it because it looks as if you know under a purple blanket the color of Joker, you know, the, the Joker returns and that's exactly what Damien wants. And, uh, it, you know, the, it's the end of the world again, as the final page says. So this, this is not getting a second story. I don't think this is just a Damien. I think this is an almost like a, a, a an alternate story told in the six, six, six universe of the, of the Damien, where Damien was in that 666 storyline by Grant Morrison. And this is Damien at his worst, where he's fully embraced his darkness. And this was the fate that awaited Gotham. If, um, you know, this is the a message of a very dark Damien, one who sells his soul to the executive, to the devil, to save Gotham. But Gotham still falls. And when Gotham falls, so does the last bit of Damien's humanity. And that's exemplified by him actually wanting to bring back the Joker's soul which, I mean, can you imagine a, a greater disregard for humanity than bringing back the soul of arguably the most evil uh, one you can imagine? And so this is a really, really dark and depressing tale in my mind. Sounds, That's how I read sounds, it. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like you're, you're 100% right. And it sounds like it's exactly what I would expect from Damien because like I said, he's a piece <laughs> of shit. And the fact that you said it was based on a Grant Morrison 666, then yeah, <laughs> no wonder I didn't like it. Not a surprise at all. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's just move on, shall we? Uh, Hunter or Hunted is the next story by Guillaume Sengillen on story and art. Ben Abernathy's the editor, so I guess seeing even does the uh, the letters here, which uh, admirable admirable job. I didn't care for the art uh, at all; it's too, a little too stylized for for myself, uh, and I didn't care for the colors either. Very sort of depressing, like brownish and muddy color palette. Um, and it's basically a story of, of Cassandra Kane, apparently in the future state as well. And she goes and tries to have some street food and gets attacked by the, the magistrate. And, uh, although she's probably capable of fighting her way out, she gets some help from, I guess, Bruce Wayne, which doesn't necessarily make sense. Cause isn't he dead in future state, but he's dressed as Batman. So yeah. that was a problem for me. And then the other problem I had is like <laughs> The whole thing about the magistrate is they hate masks, right? Other than the fact that at times in certain panels, it looks like the top half of Cassandra Kane's face is colored in purple, but you could also make the argument that that's just a shadow from her hood or her hair. There are other panels where it doesn't look like she's wearing a mask at all. Yeah. And like two or three pages in, they're talking about, they're calling her a mask, talking about her wearing a mask. I had to go back and look and say, did, is she yeah. wearing a mask? Because yeah, she's, certainly she, art, she's not wearing artwork, a mask. <laughs> the artwork doesn't. The artwork doesn't look like she's wearing a mask. And even if she is wearing a mask, she's wearing a mask that is looks so much like her face. She might as well not be wearing a mask. So I thought this was awful and nonsensical, and and even like putting that nitpick aside, pointless. It was pointless. Nothing happens other than Cassandra Kane fights some magistrate guys, and Batman comes and helps her out at the end. So. It would have been more interesting to me if she had taken him, if Batman had showed up to, to help her and she didn't need Batman's help. But otherwise, the fact that she does need Batman's help, it, it doesn't necessarily lessen her in my mind, but it removes impact and agency from her in the story. So this to me is the single worst story we've had in Batman Urban Legends so far. It, it just was 
I did not like it at all. I didn't see the point of it. I thought there were massive problems with it continuity wise and, and, uh, visually. Um, yeah, I, I, I pretty much hated it. Uh, so I'm sure there's other people that love it and it's, you know, just me personally not liking it. And that's great. Um, maybe other people that are a fan of this creator, um, certainly I'm, I'm not, I'm not familiar with them. So I, you know, I don't know. Um, maybe it's DC just wanting to, to give them a chance to see what they can do. You know, great. But as far as this story for me, it, it did not work. So I don't know, maybe yeah. so we, we've disagreed so far in the first two, Rocky, what'd you think of this one? <laughs> uh, I actually, I, I will agree with you for the most part on this. This did not work for me, although I will be more sympathetic with the art. I do think that if, if, if there was a better colorist on this, if Singlin had somebody else do his colors instead of himself, that this, this could have really popped off the page. One of the things he does really, the, he really conveys, uh, the, the height of the buildings and, and depth perception very well. So his angles are pretty cool. Like I really get a sense when they're going through the streets on, on, on the heights of the buildings and swinging from tower to tower. Uh, I, I really think that, uh, I really think that there's a lot here that could have been made better by a better colorist because I think that his line, you know, I think his, uh, uh, his, his sense of uh, proportion is good is the way that he, uh, the way that he outlines the, the buildings and his landscaping, I, I, it, it's, it, it works. I think it's really interesting. This Gotham, I, I really got a sense that this is, I almost felt like I just finished watching a movie called, uh, uh, Kate last night that apparently takes place in Japan. And I, this almost has a Japan, Japanese feel to it. And maybe that's the more the manga style art, but, uh, artistically, this sort of intrigues me a little bit. I'm not a big fan of the manga style, but, Admittedly, it's it, it's slowly starting to have an uh, an influence on me. Uh, at times, it's really weird. Some of these panels, the details, some of the in some of the panels, you can see details of what's on of the computer and and the desk and what's on the desk, and then other panels, they're just blank and they're just filled with extra color to cover up the fact that he's getting he's lazy in some panels and over detailed in other panels. It's really weird, and. In any event, the story itself is completely useless. This is just Cassandra Kane going for lunch, gets attacked by the magistrate's forces. She runs for it. Eventually, Batman shows up. They knock out the magistrate forces and they take off. This is not in the continuity at all. I think this is just a story to show off the pencil work and the coloring of uh, Gulliam Singelin. And, you know, again, I pencils aren't bad, but I really wish he would let somebody else, uh, you know, put Jordi Belair or uh, Alex Sinclair on his colors, I think it would be much better. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm glad you mentioned the depth of field because that, that probably is the one place where the artwork does really shine uh, for me as well. Uh, all right. Last uh, story. It's another uh, full length, 20 page story. The Batman with no name from Kenny Porter is the writer. Baldemir Rivas to the artist Alejandro Sanchez on colors, Tom Lapolitano on letters. We're in on some, prison planet in the in the far future pluto uh in the 853rd century and there's people that are trying to, to break out and batman apparently is the warden of this prison and he shows up but what's interesting about this batman they call him the batman with no name and apparently he has um he has the ability to sort of channel all the different bat men and women uh that have basically preceded him so at times he's he's terry mcginnis at times he's bruce wayne uh, at times, he's somebody called Zer N R, 
uh, as he changes to so that, that mode. That's the Grant Morrison version from the Grant Morrison days. Oh, gotcha. Uh, the Zuranah. The uh, Zuranah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and he's got a, a robotic, almost, I don't know, like a Funko Pop or Lego type um, robotic Robin as Robin. a sidekick. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this was this was fun and it was interesting. Uh, I certainly would not go all in for a whole series that starred this character. Um, but it was pretty interesting, the fact that he was born there on that prison planet uh, and he he lost everything and, and adopted the identity of Batman and trained himself and can transform uh, into all these different modes. It was interesting enough and he even kind of showed how he, he channels um, Mercy at the end and and gives the the last prisoner a chance to kind of turn her her life around in a way she's a she's a Mister Freeze analog um, in the far future. So I thought this was okay. Uh, I certainly was glad that at the end we didn't get some oh to be continued in the Batman with no name number you know one coming next year or whatever because God knows we have far too many Batman titles from DC already, and I don't feel this this is strong enough to sort of warrant its own series. But for for one issue, uh, for one story, I thought it was okay. Um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was, you know, great or anything like that. But but it was a solid story, uh, and the, the artwork, while stylized, I think worked. Um, and part of why the artwork worked so well, and this kind of goes to Rocky's point for, you know, why the last story didn't work. Alejandro Sanchez's colors really helped bring it to life with this sort of almost silvery palette of uh, of color which really helps sell the idea that this is happening in, in the future. So yeah, I thought this was pretty solid um, overall. what do you think, Rocky? I, I, I really like the idea that uh, I'm going to give a uh, writer, Kenny Porter, some credit that the idea that the Batman of the 853rd century is, you know, I guess permanently stationed on Pluto and his only legacy is Batman. He, he doesn't have his own individual identity. And that's part of the sacrifice. He, as he explains to Cryo at the end, who is sort of like the Mister Freeze analog, who wants to save her husband, who he helps at the end, ultimately set her up in a lab to save her husband. Uh, he, all he knows is different incarnations of Batman. Uh, as uh, the Batman of the eight hundred and fifty third century says, it's my honor and my burden to uh to basically be Batman. I have no name. I am vengeance. I am the legacy. I am only Batman. So he was Batman the Warden. He's Batman Beyond. He's Zurana. He's the Nightfall Batman. He's the Dark Knight mode Batman. So think of all the video games and all those cool little toys and all those little, all the, it's like, he's literally like a Batman video game all wrapped up into one in the 853rd century. And I think that, you know, that's a nice little callback. And I think that's a nice way to maybe attract some readers. I'll be, now I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but of all the Batman titles we have out there, if, you know, good Lord, I mean, uh, I would like to see, uh, I'd like to see them mix it up a little bit more instead of having too many Batman titles, just maybe have, you know, maybe just have a series of miniseries. I think that I'm intrigued by this 853rd century Batman. I think that there's something to be said because if this is a Batman that far in the future, think of how many other Batmans we're not aware of that this per that this individual could channel. I think there's a lot of potential here to have a lot of fun with these types of stories in uh, moving forward into the DC Omniverse. 
And uh, so, yeah, and and I great great art by Baltimore Rivas, uh, Rivas and colors by Alejandro Sanchez were, were pretty damn good. Yeah, do you feel like this is the weakest issue of Batman Urban Legends we've had so far? Well, it is because well, you know, it's hard to beat when we when we had um, um, oh god, uh, we had we had Red Todd there that Trip Sardowski Red Todd storyline, and then we had Matthew Rosenberg's um, uh, Grifter. Who? Grifter. Grifter. Jeez, why can't I think of that name? Anyways, yeah, without Grifter and Red Hood, it this. Yeah, this is a this is definitely uh it's definitely a miss for me. This this is a pass. You could def I could definitely pass on this entire on this entire issue, to be quite blunt. Although I do yeah, I, I do like the eight hundred and fifty third century Batman. Yeah, I mean I, I like that first story and it does lead into a Batman Beyond. So I think if you're a Batman Beyond fan, you, you probably pick this up. Um you're not a Batman Beyond fan. I'm not necessarily a Batman Beyond fan, but I felt like it was it was interesting enough, but I'm not picking this up. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I, I mean, those middle two stories were, were, yeah. As much as I like Tim Seeley and I'm a fan of his work, uh, you know, I'm not a Damien fan at all. And that six, six, six story didn't work for me at all. The third story was awful. Last story was okay. So yeah, I mean, real, real miss for, for urban legends this week. And like you said, uh, the fact that the Red Hood story from Zdarsky, the the cheer drops story, and then the uh, the Grifter story from Rosenberg were so fantastic. They've really been carrying it. Um, and we had talked about the need. Did they really need to have an Urban Legend Batman Urban Legends title? How it was going to work? Kudos to DC for choosing a couple great stories to to start. I wonder if they would, might not have been better off splitting up those two stories. Uh, so now it's going to be. Are you going to give us a good, another good story with that caliber uh, of uh, of quality to help carry this Batman Urban Legends title? Otherwise, I don't know, man. It could. I mean, I, I look at it like the way I look at the Batman Black and White. When that concept first came out, it was done very, very well. And we had great stories, but it's gone on so long now. The quality of story overall, I feel, has declined. Could we see the same thing happen in Urban Legends? And I think that's a, an important call because that's a it's a linchpin. It's a eight it's a eight dollar book, seven ninety nine. So yeah, I'm well, sure it helps out DC's bottom line quite a bit. I think what they want to avoid, what they should be trying to avoid, they need to distinguish this from Batman Black and White. The, yeah. This Batman Urban Legends should not be just a compilation of a bunch of random stories. It should actually be maybe a little bit of soap opera storytelling with one, you know, with one or yeah, two. Yeah, it needs to be. It needs you know. to be serialized. That's the other thing yeah. about this. Every one of these stories is a one and done. Yeah, because you don't want to end up like Batman Black and White, which is fine. Batman Black and Whites are fine, fine, but they're they're their own little. They already got their own niche. I, I for Batman yep. Urban Legends, it has to stand out on its own, and I think adding more of the serialization. Is is a good idea and focus on the, on maybe some maybe some slightly bigger names as opposed to trying to be experimental. Leave that to Batman Black and White or the the color titles, you know, Black yep. and Gold or what what have you. Agreed. All right, we're not done with Batman yet, everybody. Uh, we got the Joker number seven coming up here. Uh, James Tynan the fourth is the writer. Guillaume March is the artist. Arif Prianto on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, and there's a, a backup uh, punchline story that just won't end. Chapter seven, also by Tynan with co-writer Sam Johns. Art and colors by Sweeney Boo. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh, what do you think of Joker? 
Well, I've been enjoying Joker. I've been enjoying every single issue. And I've been, I've, it hasn't been bothering me like it's been bothering some people. It has not been bothering me that the Joker is not the main star in his own comic book. Uh, because quite frankly, I've never found the Joker to be a particularly interesting villain, to be honest. I, I've never liked the Joker. And, but he's just always been, he's just someone who causes chaos. I don't really think there's anything to learn about the Joker that's frankly interesting. He's just a psychotic jerk. That's what he is. And he likes, he likes to, in, in the immortal words of Alfred in, in the, uh, in the uh, Batman movies, he's just someone who likes to watch the world burn. That's not particularly interesting. But people, how people will react to a guy that likes to watch the world burn, that's interesting. And so I like the fact that we're getting, like we do in this issue, we're getting a focus on characters like J Julia Penny Pennyworth, you know, Alfred's daughter in sort of like a James Bond-like setting. Here she starts off in this issue at Santa Prisca, you know, because she wants to, uh, she's undercover to figure out what's going on following the death of Bane. Uh, she doesn't want, uh, you know, Santa Prisca is, is actually trying to create tourism in the place, trying to make money off the death of Bane and, and even trying to come up with a contract with Disney and, <laughs> and, and, and crew, uh, Disney cruises. And J Julia Penningworth is there to, you know, she, she wants to prevent that from happening. In the meantime, Oracle's trying to contact her. And, you know, she's very much like it's, it's, it's definitely much a callback to James Bond in this first issue you know, with uh, her, you know, talking to Oracle because Oracle wants to get information from her because uh, obviously Commissioner, Go uh, pardon me, Jim Gordon, the former commissioner is, of course, he's arrested. He's arrested and he's being interrogated by a woman by the name of Isabella Hallow Hallows in, in France, who's Madame Halloween. And all these different things are coming in into line here. And uh, there's a just a fantastic full page spread with with Pennyworth. The name is Pennyworth, Julia Pennyworth. I mean, it's just I mean, it's so tropey. It's right out of James Bond. But I mean, Julian March, man, the way that that guy draws the exaggerated hips and the sexy legs on this Julia Pennyworth. She's a sexy woman. I love this full page pa page. And sh you can see that the bullets in each chamber of her gun, they're being shot out. And she's I mean, she's definitely not, she's a woman to be reckoned with. And I, I just really hope, uh, I really hope we see more of a Julia Pen Pennyworth and we, we clearly will as this, uh, as this story progresses. Meanwhile, uh, uh, Jim Gordon is talking with this uh, Isabella Hallows and Isabella Hallows, she's Madame Halloween. And she's basically like, a, she's a top cop official for most of Europe. Uh, and, and she just wants to be able to, uh, she wants to get to the bottom of, of this sort of this, uh, the the secret hideaway where these villains go, where they leave, where they might leave America. America is the hotbed of super villainy. But when they have secret places that they hide out in, in Europe and other parts of the world, she wants to make sure she gets a handle on that. And so she wants to find out as much information as she can. Uh, she knows that Jim Gordon is not responsible for the death of the three scientists that were involved with cloning human tissue illegally. Uh, but clearly Joker might be up to something. Uh, we, we don't really, I'm not really sure what it is. There, there's more questions being asked right now than answered. At some point, uh, at some point that I know there was, uh, uh, there was a scene here that I didn't, didn't move that there was a scene here between, between Oracle, Oracle and Batgirl and spoiler that didn't really advance the plot very much. This Cressida character that 
that hired Jim Gordon. It looks like she there's signs that she may be working for the Court of Owls. But uh, and what backs that up is that Oracle and Spoiler and Batgirl and, and Cassandra Kane are attacked by a Talon. But the Talon feels pain and Talons aren't supposed to feel pain. So they think this it might not, you know, Cassandra Kane easily dispatches this Talon, but this Talon character is clearly feels pain from uh, being easily defeated by Cassandra. But Talons aren't supposed to feel pain as puppets of the Court of Owls. So is this is this Talon actually from the Court of Owls? Is the Court of Owls are they the are they the the organization that are secretly paying Jim Gordon $25 million to find and kill the Joker. It looks that way, but maybe that is misdirection. I'd be interested to hear your read on it, Jace. But Oracle's got all these questions. She's not sure what's going on. Meanwhile, there seems to be possibly some, some rapport and some maybe even romance vibes between this Madam Halloween and Jim Gordon as they're over drinks. They're sort of, you know, you know, having a, an exchange of and a battle of wits back and forth and, and knowledge. Clearly they're both seasoned. They're both older experienced uh, individuals who have uh, fought crime, albeit on different continents. And it's, this was a very interesting dialogue. I think Tinian really shines here in the dialogue between these two. Jim Gordon, clearly he already has a pretty good read on Madam Halloween in terms of what she wants. She clearly respects Jim Gordon and, uh, it's clear then uh, it ends up vengeance of, uh, pardon me, vengeance, the daughter of Bane shows up and it's clear that she, a vengeance has either been uh, uh, recording their conversation or eavesdropping uh, because uh, Madam Halloween says that uh, nobody can know that they're working together because Madam Halloween wants to work with Jim Gordon to find out as much as she can about this, about this organization that might be hiding villains and these secret hideouts for for villains all over the globe. Uh, but clearly vengeance daughter of Bane wants in on, on the uh, information as well. And it, it ends with a tease in terms of that next issue, issue eight, we'll, we'll find out the truth about vengeance that that lab that was growing where the three scientists were killed, where they were cloning body parts. One has to wonder, is that the same lab that vengeance herself broke out of at one point? And what does Joker know about it? Is Joker the one he's responsible for killing those three scientists? There's there's a lot. There seems to be a lot of moving parts here at, at play. We know that Joker's not responsible for what happened at ADA. At least we don't think. What's the origins of the daughter of the daughter of Bane? Vengeance. What's going on exactly? What's the Joker up to here? What what's the Court of Owls up to? Uh, we're at issue seven here. We got. Five issues left. It goes to it's twelve issues long, I think, in this story arc anyway. And I'm intrigued. I love the. I I think I'm asking the right questions. I'm really excited to see where this is headed. I don't care that I that Joker's not in this story. Straight up, I I just don't care. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. And if people are really that interested in in the Joker, well, God, Lord knows there's a. There, there's a thousand Batman stories you can read where the Joker overshadows Batman. I'm not going to lose sleep over the Joker, a character I hate being overshadowed in his own comic. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the fact part of the reason that this is so good is the fact that the Joker's not in it. You know, like we've, mm -hmm. we've talked about the best issues have been the ones without the Joker. So as yeah. far as the artwork goes, you know, I've talked before about how this is such a different style for Guillaume March. I mean, I first 
saw his work on Catwoman and it was a much finer line. The line weights were, were much thinner and it made for much more beautiful art. And this is, you know, a thicker um, line weight in general, and it, it makes for more impactful artwork. And I, I think the storytelling from panel to panel is done very, very well. The only thing I don't like about the art and, and, Again, overall, I think the art is fantastic. The only thing I don't like about the art, and uh, and this goes to, uh, I'm sure, an artistic choice. It's not necessarily something he's doing wrong. But the fact that sometimes Jim Gordon's eyeglasses are completely 100% reflective, like like aviator sunglasses, and other times they're completely see-through, that drives me crazy that he does that. And sometimes one lens will be reflective, and the other lens you'll be able to see right through to Jim Gordon's eye. <laughs> just drives me crazy. Uh, his lenses are either reflective or they're not. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm completely nitpicking because I think for the most part, the art is uh, fantastic. I do agree with you that the dynamic between Madam Halloween and Jim Gordon is, is interesting. I don't know if Tynan's going to try to, to play it up and, and, you know, sort of ha- have them head down a path where it seems like they're going to get together. But ultimately we know that, Jim Gordon romantically, his life is always doomed to failure. So I almost hope that Tynan doesn't go that direction and just keeps it there as like a subtext because Mm -hmm. to have it become more to the, uh, you know, part of the story and have it come more to the forefront just means that Jim's going to get the rug pulled out from under him at some point or she'll get killed or something like that. Uh, And so I'd rather have it stay uh, in the background. Um, but as far as the mystery part of it, uh, yeah, there's you know this network and and how the Joker plays into that. Seeing Julia Pennyworth and her trying to get revenge for Bane having killed her father is, is fantastic. I think Julia Pennyworth is maybe the one Batman family member who uh, I'm most interested in, who we have the least, uh, who's who's gotten the least amount of screen time, uh, as it were. Uh, I'm way more interested in her than I am in in any sort of Damien story. Or, um, or Tim Drake story, or even a Cassandra Kane story. Uh, at, at this point, um, probably more interested in her than Red Hood uh, as well. So, uh, hope that she gets her her time in the sun. Uh, I do agree with you that what's going on with the Court of Owls? Who knows? It's a good point that uh, that Barbara Gordon made and a good observation about how this this particular talent seemed to. Uh, feel pain, which they're not supposed to. So maybe he doesn't actually uh, work for the Court of Owls. Maybe he's not a true talent at all. Um, and then the other part of this story that I don't necessarily have questions because I just kind of set it aside. But with everything that's going on in Fear State, everything that's going on with the Magistrate and the, the future of um, Gotham City and what have you, this story so obviously sits outside of all that. Uh, so you just kind of have to set all that aside. And especially seeing a Talon in here. Um, and and we know the Joker is going to be at least somewhat involved at, at some point, my guess, in, in Fear State. Uh, or maybe it's just the the fallout of the Joker war. Um, it's, it, it is sort of, uh, sort of interesting to see how that's all going to play out. Plus, we have a Talon over in Suicide Squad. How does that play in? So, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of questions in terms of where all this stuff fits editorially. Uh, and continuity wise, but I guess we kind of just leave that out for now. Uh, as far as the, uh, the backup story, uh, the punchline story, you know, neither Rocky nor I really have been enjoying it. I will say that I, I did sort of enjoy this one more than a lot of the previous iterations. 
And I think that's because this – you almost could say this wasn't even a punchline story. It was more of a bluebird story of, of Harper Row in the prison. Uh, so I, I did enjoy getting a chance to see Harper Row and, and what she's up to. So, uh, And the artwork, again, I, it's fine, but I don't know that it necessarily suits a kind of a dark punchline story. It's it's pretty cartoony and, and bright in terms of the style and the color. So what would you think of the backup, Rocky? Well, the backup uh, – the backup, uh, again, Sweeney Boo's art. I mean, I – I love Sweeney Boo. Uh, you know, I I love her as a you know she was again. I say again, I'm I, she was one of the most pleasant people that I met in uh, in, in New York Comic Con uh, last year. Uh, I just I just feel that her art here it, it's not it's this isn't a good mesh between artist and and the story itself. You know, this is a this this is a prison setting, and I think the artistic style just doesn't quite work. I think, especially now in the early days of us of readers wanting to get to to know Punchline, Punchline should look more hardcore. She has to look more. Uh, just, uh, I, I guess I just prefer. It's my own bias. I prefer a more traditional style, DC style, more hardcore, and 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 frankly, more sexy, more hardcore, more sexy. Uh, she is she is the Joker's she's not she's the Joker's sidekick but doesn't you know she's she's an evil bitch and she's trying to she's trying to build a name and a reputation for herself. Punchline is in prison and she's utilizing all of her influence through the Joker to try to ultimately find and to murder uh, an individual uh, a girl by the name of uh, Kelly Ness and Bluebird Harper Rowe has infiltrated the prison and to try to uh, help Kelly Ness escape to protect Kelly Ness from punchline who has taken control of the prison or at least uh, controls the, the inmates, I guess the storyline itself is, I just find ridiculous. I mean, this it's just, I, I just find this to be badly. I just find this to be poorly structured. Okay. I'll be diplomatic. It's, it's, it's poorly structured and it's, it lacks verisimilitude. I mean, if Ke- Kelly, if Kelly Ness is, it's so obvious. I mean, Kelly Ness has apparently has been hiding out. No guards can find Kelly Ness, but Harper O happens to stumble upon Kelly Ness in a different part of the prison. No, no guards have found her. Nobody's found her, but you know, Harper O is being attacked and by, is literally being attacked by Punchline and by Orca. And she hides out in a, in a, in a, I guess in a, in a, in a, in a locker that apparently is attached to a ventilation unit. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe Orca is working to protect Kelly Ness and also to protect Harper Rowe. So Orca might be, a, you know, even Punchline suspects that Orca might be betraying her. So, I mean, there's, again, there's, there's some semblance of a, of a storyline here that has some degree of interest to me. Uh, it just, but it just doesn't really work for me. I, I want to feel that punchline is a, is a, is an A-level threat or at least a side, a sidekick to an A-level threat. And I'm not feeling that. I got more of a sense of, uh, we reviewed when punchline, uh, last, we reviewed last week where there was a, a clown hunter story, uh, where punchline ends up, uh, talk, communicating with clown hunter, you know, through you know through an iPhone or whatever from prison, I I got a sense that Punchline was powerful. She had connections and she could talk to somebody outside of prison. I got more of a sense of of the gravitas of her power and connections 
that that of of her own agency as a villain in that story than I have in this entire backup series, and that's that's not a good thing. This this should be a series where I think of Punchline and I think that she is an A level threat or at least the sidekick to an A level threat. I should at least look at her as I would maybe Damien as as, as in terms of effectiveness alongside Batman, but I'm not feeling that at all. And that's that's a failure of the story. And sending Harper Row in here, Harper Row is a joke. I mean, I'm sorry, but Harper Row has always been a C-lister at best to me. And and here Harper Row of all people, Harper Row, you know, ends up in in, in the ventilation shaft, cowardly running away from Punchline, stumbles up, up across Kelly Ness, and then how is she plan on escaping with Kelly with uh, with with uh, Kelly Ness now? I have no idea. In any event, it ends with. I'm not. Sure. I think it's one of the characters here. I'm. I'm not sure if. Uh, is it? Uh, I think it's Harper Rowe's brother. Yep. Colin. Is that yep. his name? That's his name. That's yeah, his Colin. Yeah, he goes to a now. Uh, I. He seems to have some uh, attraction to a member of the Royal Flush Gang, another male member of the Royal Flush Gang, and they have. I guess they have a moment where they're sort of bonding, and the Royal Flush Gang. Just so people are or know, punchline. Uh, dethroned the leader of the Royal Flush Clan that was running the that was sort of in control of the prison. Punchline defeated her, and and so the Royal Flush Gang has a vested interest in overthrowing Punchline's uh, power in the prison. And so Colin is presumably working on that, although he seems to be more interested in uh, uh, commencing a relationship <laughs> than, than than that. But in any event, uh, I guess it is what it is. It it didn't really work for me. I, I think it's the wrong uh, combination of story and art. Yep, I agree. Uh, all right. We come to the conclusion of Rorschach with issue number 12 from writer uh, Tom King. Jorge Fornes handles the interior art, Dave Stewart on colors, and Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, this was pretty solid. What did you think, Rocky? Um, I, I love this. I have... Um... I have, um, sorry, I have, uh, I had a particular order that I did all this. Uh, I, I take, I take notes when I review comic books. And when I read this, basically I had, uh, three words and they're all it was, was so effing good so, is, is what I wrote. <laughs> um, you know, I, <laughs> I, it's just so funny because I, I've said this before, but I have said before. I have been so brutally hard on Tom King in the past. This is, I don't, I'm trying to remember the last time I read a comic book that surprised me and impacted me with such a, a successful misdirection in terms of, and I got, I guess I got to give the artist, uh, the artist here, uh, Jose Farnes. I mean, I got, I guess I got to credit him. This was fantastic. Basically we, we knew, we knew how this was going to resolve. We knew that the main plotline was resolved already with issue 11. We knew that uh, Turley, that the President Ford, uh, basically the storyline is uh, this this comic book artist, this screwed up comic book artist, uh, uh, Will Meyerson, and this Laura Cummings, uh, who is sort of raised by a... a sort of a right-wing terrorist group. They got together. They're both both misguided. They find each other and they try to assassinate uh they try to assassinate President Redford and it's revealed that the it's actually the the 
opposing candidate uh, Turley, Governor Turley, who saw how screwed up Will Myerson and Laura Cummings were. His handlers knew how screwed up Will Myerson and Laura Cummings were. And they basically aimed them like a bullet to try to take out the the Redfords and, and, and basically try to get away with it. And that's really what they wanted to do. And that was basically reviewed or reviewed revealed over the previous 11 issues in spectacular fashion but by, by by Tom King. Now I just want to uh bring up some of the images here. Now the question that I had going into this and why I was so excited about this was I I was genuinely curious as to how the lieutenant was going to how cuz the lieutenant knows the truth. You know, I, I was curious how this was going to end because Turley, Governor Turley is so powerful. I mean, there's no way he owns the cops. He owns, he owns all the, all the, like he owns the cops. He's got connections with the FBI, the CIA. What can this lone lieutenant do to, to put an end to, to the corruption of Governor Turley? And it's, this is in the world of Watchmen. And we got to remember that in the world of Watchmen, everything is dark. Everything is corrupt. And what Tom King does perfectly here is that he encapsulates that so perfectly in this series and and President Redford is himself a terrible president and has and and he's done un, un, it's been hinted that he's done terrible things and he's misled the people and Turley this governor Turley's been setting himself up as being the savior of the perp, of the people and and to to deal with the corruption of President Redford vote for me and but president but governor turley is losing the election so the idea early on it was so easy to believe that that maybe redford had intentionally set up that it was redford himself president redford himself had set up his own attempted at assassination uh and <laughs> there was all this misdirection and what have you and it's finally revealed that lo and behold this governor turley is in fact the one behind it all and uh, this lieutenant, he he approaches, you know, he he goes into Governor Turley's headquarters, and got, behind Governor Turley's desk is this giant smiley face. And what I love about the symbolism of the smiley face, and just I want to back up for people listening, people familiar with the Watchmen know that the smiley face is for Watchmen has a droplet of blood on it, and that it's a famous symbol, the smiley face with the with the droplet of blood. Well, President Turley. Pardon me, Governor Turley, who's running to be president, is behind in the polls. He wants to win, and but he he has a fascination and obsession with the comedian, and he's got this big smiley face behind him behind his desk. But it it's it's missing the blood. It doesn't have the blood on it, <laughs> and that's interesting. It's just a smiley face, and it's it's sort of symbolic of the arrogance, uh, and the arrogance and the bravado and the supreme confidence of Turley. And and also his like his pristine smiley corruption that it just it makes you sick knowing that this is a guy that attempted he, he's going to get away with the attempted assassination of a president and here this lieutenant is in the room knowing what he's done but and yet he's he's there to tell them and and this lieutenant is clearly feeding them lies saying that I have a recording here in the recording it reveals everything about the. The, about the conspiracy of Redford to do this, to set this all up. It's his own people, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, he, he clearly must be lying to them. And the the brilliance of it and the way that the artist 
uh, the way that the artist, uh, Jorge Farnes, sets this up, the lieutenant, he sets the recording down and he begins to play it. And he asks for a couple beers. He's completely relaxed. He's playing it perfectly. Even coming into the building, he plays the guard like a violin. He's, he's letting himself be used and, and talked down to. He, and he's just, he's playing the role. He knows exactly what he's doing because he knows exactly the type of scum that he's dealing with. Their arrogance. They, 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 they're going to get away with it. They know they're going to get away with it. They're powerful. They don't know what's coming and neither do we, the readers. I almost don't even want to spoil what happens in this issue. Even in this review, I want people to buy it. I don't know, man. Should, 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 should we spoil this or should we not spoil this? I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, I, maybe we don't, maybe we let people you know, I, I, see I, themselves it, how it actually goes down. All I got to say is that when he plays that tape for them and what you, what you think you hear on the tape and then what happens and the way that Tom, Tom King, the writer masterfully scripts it and the way that it's masterfully rendered on the page by Jose Fornes and and you know the, the the tape recorder is played you can see the hands come to to start the cassette and then you hear what what's being played you hear some sounds but and you can only you could almost only do this in the in with in the comic book medium that's what I give Tom Crane credit for you almost couldn't pull this off in a movie but he pulls it off and you could only pull it off in the comic book medium this outstretched hand starts to play the tape and then you hear some screams and some yelling and then a bloodied hand shuts the tape off and you think, well, all that sound must have came from the, come from the tape, from the recording, but it didn't and you only know that when you pull back and you see the full scene. I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away when I flipped that page, man, or rather the digital page. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. I was, th this Lieutenant has really become, he's, he's become Rorschach. He, 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 this is exactly the type of revenge that Rorschach himself, a poetic kind of justice, but visceral and violent, violent that Rorschach would inflict upon them. And, this is absolute. I love this ending. I haven't been this satisfied with the ending of a comic book series in years. This is so. This is so good. I can't believe Tom King wrote this. <laughs> I love this. I can't believe. I, I just love it, man. I, I. I. just absolutely love this. I'm buying this as a hardcover. I have to. This is. I'm thoroughly entertained. This is a fantastic sequel. A, a quasi sequel. To, to Watchmen. It's right up there with the Watchmen HBO Max series, which I also loved. This is actually, I enjoyed this even more than the HBO Max uh, Watchmen. This ending, this this brought it all home for me. And at the end, I, I love the callback to Lee Harvey Oswald. When he goes into the theater, he pulls an Oswald. He goes, you know, instead of going home, instead of trying to escape, he knows he's going to be caught for what happened, what he did. For the violent act that he did, he goes to a, a screening of Pontius Pirate, who is, of course, the character created by Will Myerson, the individual who attempted to assassinate President Redford. And, and he watches that movie 
and he watches it just like Lee Harvey Oswald did after he killed the president. He goes to the theater and, and it ends with him watching a scene where the pirate says, uh, I never learned to care for the wisdom of gods and men. Have it ye then, have it ye bastards, come and fight. If I die today, I die a pirate. He is willing to die and he, he, he and he's smiling, eating popcorn, knowing he just murdered the presidential candidate and he doesn't care. He, he knows in his heart he did a good thing. <laughs> this is, man, I got such a shit-eating grin on my face after reading this. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. I just, this is just fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I kind of wondered what we were going to get in the last issue because like you said, everything was sort of wrapped up. Like we, we understood the mystery. We got all the answers to our questions last issue. But what we didn't get last issue was any sense of justice, right? Any yeah. comeuppance for, for Governor Turley and, and his bid to become uh, the president. And, and obviously if the plot succeeds and uh, this, this detective, this lieutenant who's investigating the crime wasn't able to figure it out, then then Turley wins, right? When he basically sets up Redford as, as trying to uh, assassinate him as, as his, even if it's not Redford himself, but even if it's just a Redford administration that's been behind the uh, the attempt attempted assassination of Turley. Uh, so so how is this all gonna, gonna play out? Because as you said, Turley's powerful, Turley's protected, Turley has all these uh, uh, layers between him, this plausible deniability, and so, how can justice be served? Uh, and the other aspect of it, you know, you, we talk about the, the cynical nature of the, the Watchmen universe and how everything there is dark. And uh, I, I feel like our our current political climate, at least in the United States, more closely resembles the Watchmen universe than ever. Maybe we need a big giant squid attack to, to, <laughs> to get this bipartisanship behind us because people can't seem to come together Um not even on the you know an recent anniversary of of nine eleven, uh, just people sniping back and forth. So so what's what's going to be in the last issue? How's this detective going to you know resolve this? And and you're right, he does he does take matters into his own hands, and it's a clever way that he does it in terms of how Tom King lays it out for us. But but two things that are that are so important. First of all, you're right, he knows he's going to get caught, but he goes to see that the movie. He goes to see Pontius pilot or Pontius pirate rather. And, and what, so what struck me was as he's watching it and he's hearing the pirate say, I learned to swim and fight and I learned justice and I learned how much of my own, or I learned how precious justice was and how much of my own blood I was willing to give to save it. And that's what this is all about, right? This detective knows that from what he's learned, that Turley's going to get away with it. Not only is Turley going to get away with it, it's going to be what ushers him into the White House. Yeah. Now, Redford's not a good president either. And so, you know, much like real life, you're, you're faced with the lesser of two evils. They're both bad, but who's worse, right? right? And so when you start talking about that and you start talking about justice and how you're going to have justice be served, you're very much into that Rorschach territory, right? And my whole thing right from the beginning of this story was why is this called Rorschach? I think I even said it a couple times in the review. I don't understand <laughs> why this is called Rorschach throughout. I haven't understood why this story is called Rorschach because the, the argument could be made until this final issue, the more important character 
well, the most important character has been this detective, this lieutenant who's been investigating. But between Rorschach and the kid, the two that were responsible for the assassination attempt, the kid was the the bigger threat. The kid was the character with more agency. You know, Meyerson as this old man taking on the Rorschach persona wasn't really ever a threat. And, you know, she did use him and, and train him to some extent, but he wasn't ever really the threat. But this idea of Rorschach, right, this idea of throughout the investigation, throughout what the uh, detective has learned, the submersive uh, or, or subversive rather um, aspect of Rorschach as a character it's almost like this detective, this lieutenant, has become infected with the idea of Rorschach, with the uh, uh, with the concept of what Rorschach is. And we certainly know the original uh, the original Rorschach Kovacs uh, was all about justice, right? Justice was the ultimate. Things need to be fair. Things need to be right. And despite the analytical nature of this detective, and despite uh, the brilliance of him in uncovering this this mystery, what does he ultimately succumb to in the end? The emotion of a love for justice. Because mm-hmm. you're 100% right. He has become Rorschach. And we saw that at the end of issue 11 when he even put on the Rorschach costume, put on his mm-hmm. other clothes over the top of it. The only thing that I think would have been better, and it's, I wouldn't be surprised if Tom thought about this, um, if when he went into the movie – as he's, we you know, once he sat down in his seat, if he'd put on the Rorschach mask, um, that I think that would have been a great ending to have the last panel with him wearing the Rorschach mask. I love that he is watching the movie with that smirk on his face because he, he, yeah, he knows he's going to get caught. Uh, he's probably going to die, but he's going to die a pirate. He's going to die having served justice. He's going to die, uh, mm-hmm. giving up his blood for, you know, something that he believes in that's, that's greater than himself. But this last issue explains exactly why this title is called Rorschach and couldn't and shouldn't be called anything else. The detective has, in his own way, become Rorschach throughout without any intention. You know, he was always an- analytical and almost cold and and investigating this uh, assassination attempt with, uh, you know, complete intelligence and and you know complete bipartisanship with all emotion set aside. But in the end. Uh, he succumbs to exactly what the concept of Rorschach is, right? This idea that justice is the most important thing. So yeah, brilliantly done. The entire series, great uh, emotional artwork from Jorge Fornes. Emotional when it needs to be in in a very subtle way uh, and uh, kind of unemotional when it needed to be uh, in, in other ways with great detail. So yeah, this is fantastic. This is my book of the week. This This blew me away. That ending, the fact that the lieutenant himself becomes Rorschach um, and in a different way, because even when we see him putting on the Rorschach costume in the last issue, I, I still wasn't clear. Like, okay, why is he doing that? Like, it still doesn't make sense. But what really brings it all home is him going to that movie and the dialogue in the movie as he's watching it, uh, Pontius Pirate talking about how him discovering how much of his blood he was willing to give up for justice. Uh, yeah, just fantastic. What a, what a great, yeah, great ending to the series. So, yeah, you know, talking about it with you, I, I, it's better than Justice League last ride. Yeah, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to replace it. It's just, I, I got more excited about it, even listening to you talk about it after I talk about it. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's that masterful. It's that good. It's that yeah. good. And to your point about 
picking up the hardcover, I mean, it's going to be one of those things that, you know, I've read the whole thing, you know, monthly as it's come out. It's going to read even better when I sit down and read it all together as one yeah. long narrative. So, uh, All right. Up next, we have Pennyworth number two of seven from writer Scott Brian Wilson. Juan Gideon is the artist. John Rosh on colors. Uh, DC Hopkins does the letters. Again, if you're a fan of the Pennyworth series that uh, comes on Epics, I think is the the, seri- the streaming service that it shows up on. It's got the James Bond feel of Pennyworth back in his MI5 uh, days. A little bit of him in the present day. Uh, he's been captured and he figures out that it all has to do with something that happened back in his MI6 days. Um, and other than that, it's, it's really about this juxtaposition of who Alfred was back then when he was, uh, you know, a, a spy basically, and how his training to be, be a manservant from his father actually prepared him to be a spy, which in turn prepared him for his ultimate role in life, which was as kind of the major domo for Batman, right? Where he's, he's pulling in skills from uh, being a butler or a manservant and pulling in skills from uh, his, his days as a, um, a spy or a special agent or whatever you want to call it. So I love getting this backstory. I love how it fleshes out Alfred as a character. Uh, and I love the kind of the playful banter between uh, Pennyworth and his, um, his partner here is uh, his fellow spy who was the daughter of the, the family that Pennyworth and his father were uh, manservants for, you know, they've known each other since they were kids uh, and so it's fantastic to see yeah. uh, kind of the playfulness. And she, she, in a way has a little bit of a. Shirley kind of is a, her a name. Shirley. Yeah. She, she has a little bit of a one up on him because, you know, he did work for her family. And so she was kind of the, you know, the master in a way, and he was the servant. Um, and that, that sort of dynamic still kind of plays out a little bit because he's got a crush on her. Clearly she has feelings for him as well but he kind of defers to her and lets her take the lead. And uh, yeah, it's, it's done really, really well. As far as the, the, you know, the story itself um, in terms of, you know, what their mission is or whatever, it's a little tropey. Uh, it's a little kind of out there, you know, set in world war two and they're, they're trying to take out some secret weapons that the the Russians have or whatever. And it's not, it's not really that important. Um, it's more about the the dynamic and and the feel and the tone of the story. So again, I, I think if you're a, a huge Batman fan and a fan of Alfred as a character, you're going to like this. If you like that Pennyworth TV show, you're probably going to like this. Is it you know fantastic and best thing I ever read? No, but it's a it's a solid story. And you know I'd much rather would have this uh, exist than you know a lot of the stories that we got in in Batman Urban Legends this week. You know what I mean? Because at least it's a character that's sort of beloved and we're getting that more fleshed out rather than, you know, some future state Gotham story that nobody cares about. And is not going to matter uh, in, you know, six months or whatever. This, this could have uh, a much more long lasting uh, consequence on, on the bat family and these characters uh, because Alfred, even though he's dead now, I imagine he'll, he'll come back at some point. So uh, I definitely enjoyed this. What'd you think Rocky? Yeah, I, I I very much enjoyed enjoyed it too. I I enjoyed this more than the first issue. Uh, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about how uh, what uh, why this story resonates so well. Uh, in that one one has to always wonder. Well, what what can Batman learn from a butler? 
did uh, what did Alfred Pennyworth other than make uh, Batman cucumber sandwiches? What the hell did Alfred ever do? Right. Well, I mean, this this comic book addresses that. And of course, the, the, the TV series Pennyworth addresses that too. Alfred Pennyworth, of course, has a history of he worked for MI5. He was in World War. You know, he worked, you know, pre-World War Two, into World War Two, and beyond. Uh, I mean, the continuity is a little wonky and that's why Alfred is so old, but yet still so capable. And all his observational skills he picked up. He learned quite a bit from his dad, who was uh, who was also a butler. And um, he learned from polishing silver how to pay attention through the reflection of your surroundings, to stand at attention at a diplomat's dinner by and remaining unseen in public. The best way to hide is to hide in plain sight. Every act of sewing, of buttons, of dishes, of doing dishes, making cocktails, anticipating needs, the ant- the attention to detail. You begin to see. I began to have an appreciation just how important you know what a butler's skills could probably bring to someone <laughs> who wants to be a Batman one day, and uh, you know the handler for for Alfred and his in his uh, his friend Shirley, and I. I and incidentally, I got to wonder, I don't know. And maybe somebody, uh, somebody listening or somebody in the, somebody can make a comment below if on YouTube or uh, you can query yourself if you're listening to this on the Comic Source podcast. I'm not sure who, who is Julia Pennyworth's, uh, Alfred has a daughter named Julia Pennyworth that we just finished talking about in the pages of the Joker. <laughs> Who's her mother? I actually don't know that. Is this surely her mother? I don't know. I don't know the name of uh, Julia Pen- Pennyworth's mother. Do you happen to know that, Jace? I, I don't remember. I knew <laughs> at one point. I knew at yeah. one point when she first showed up. Uh, I think she mentioned her, her mother, but I can't. Yeah. remember if, in, if this is who it is. in any event you, you you get the you get the sense here alfred has always been kind of a ladies man and uh you know he's just very humble about it and uh, i find it a little odd there was one page here where alfred seems to like shatter handcuffs i thought that was a little bit odd how he could do that with handcuffs so i'm not quite certain how a butler could learn how to shatter handcuffs like that but in any event writer uh, scott brian wilson uh actually does a a pretty good job here making me realize that maybe uh, experience not only as an MI5 agent, but also as a butler. Okay. I can see him being a pretty good, uh, could he not only a father figure ultimately to a young Bruce Wayne, but you can see why maybe Bruce Wayne also got some training from his butler as opposed to just being uh, loved as a son. So all in all, a, a pretty good comic. Yeah, like I said, pretty uh, pretty solid. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have issue three of Superman and the Authority, uh, and maybe the most appropriate name comic of all time, considering it's written by Grant Morrison. It's called Grim Dark. Uh, we have art by Mikel Yanin uh, and Travel Foreman. Jordi Belair and Alex Sinclair are the colors. Steve Wands handles the letters. Uh, I thought this one was okay. Um, we're basically getting a new version of the Enchantress, one that we've never had before. The Enchantress has always been um, sort of a, I guess what you'd call a split personality back in the day. Uh, dissociative identity disorder is the more common name they use now, but really it's a split personality because it's only two personalities that uh, it's June Moon and then the Enchantress. And, and June Moon was as goody-goody as the Enchantress was evil. That was sort of the 
the the problem and uh, or or how she was always portrayed back in the day and and here we have Morrison getting those two personalities melded together to uh, supposedly be uh, greater than the sum of the parts and so that's the the first part of the story and then we start to learn okay what comes next who's the last person that needs to be recruited and what's Superman's plan for the authority now that it's all come together what exactly is is it that he's trying to uh, to stop. Um, and then he gets attacked by Solomon Grundy at the end. So, uh, you know, I talked about it before, wasn't quite sure based on the pacing of the first two issues, why it was going so slow. It's taken forever to get the team together. And, and even after this third issue, the team is not fully together. There's still one more recruit that they're trying to get. So obviously there's more to come. And we've heard about another uh, appearance of Superman and the authority that's supposed to show up at some point in, in the future. So um, love the Mikel Yanin art. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I'm intrigued by the idea of a fully integrated personality for June Moon and the Enchantress. Um, although I will say based on the characterization we get here, I'm not really seeing much of June Moon. Um, it just feels like the Enchantress uh, has, has sort of taken over. Maybe she's not quite as malevolent as uh, you know, the enchantress that we've we've seen in the past, which you know, June Moon is so timid. I don't know that you know. Maybe it's just her filing off the rough edges of the enchantress. I I suppose. Um, but again, I, I know this is not a comic that's for me because, despite me loving Superman and being a huge fan of Mikhail Yanin's art, I'm not a fan of Grant Morrison, and uh, I haven't particularly enjoyed this so far. Um, Although I will say that Grant Morrison is the perfect person to write Manchester Black. He comes across as a complete prick here, and that's as it should be. Uh, kind of like a, almost like a, a John Constantine dialed up to 11. Um, also Midnighter and Apollo, not fans of. Uh, so it's, it's interesting choices that he's picked here to be members of this, uh, this team of the authority. Not anybody that I'm really invested in other than Superman himself. Uh, and so far from what we've seen, I'm not clear on why Superman needs the help, to be honest. But we haven't gotten that much information about the villain other than we know it's the ultra-humanite. But Superman's always been able to handle him in the past. So the other, the other part of the story is, you know, so supposedly Superman's powers are diminishing. But at times that's felt sort of inconsistent here because uh, at times he has seemed very powerful. It's also not really explained why they're diminishing um, because he seems to be in good shape to look at him, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, like I said, long term, I know the story's not for me. Um, but I am enjoying the art, and I'm reading it. It's Superman, so I'm reading it. But uh, yeah, Morrison's not doing anything to to make me change my mind about uh, all things being equal, avoiding things that he writes. I just don't tend to enjoy them, uh, and I know that's just a personal choice because uh, God knows he's popular and, and he's got plenty of fans. So, you know, that that's just a personal thing. I, I know it's not that he's a, a bad writer uh, by any stretch. So uh, what did you think of this, Rocky? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I really wish this was a 12-issue 12, a 12 series, not only not, not simply a four-issue series. I actually think I, I enjoy I – love, I love what Grant Morrison's trying to do here or at least appears to be trying to do. It seems it, – this just seems more interesting. This is more cool to me. This is more interesting. This is a much more interesting and fascinating Superman 
because he, he clearly has a plan here, this Superman. He even talks about his son being different than him, you know, his son and his son's generation being more into social activism. And he hints at that. And even Ultra Humanite, when Ultra Humanite, the bad guy here talks, he talks about, he even mentions that Superman has always been more non-interventionist, like his, unlike his son. And, uh, there's, this is clearly a different Superman, but this this is a Superman that still doesn't want to use lethal force, but he realizes that times are changing, and he clearly has a plan here, and there's a there's a looming threat that Superman sees is coming, but we're not really sure what that is yet. We know that, that there are these other villains, which uh, we know from solicits... Uh, I, I should back up here. There is a, my legitimate, I think a very legitimate criticism of this series is Grant Morrison has not done a very good job establishing who the villains are here. The villains have been established through solicits, which is the worst way to find out who they are. And uh, we found out finally, this is issue three, and we finally find out that the villain is actually named, it's Ultra Humanite. But beyond that, you had to find out through solicits or, or pictures. Uh, the other villains are shown, they're not named. Uh, here we meet Light Ray. We 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 even meet um, we even meet Omac, uh, Light Ray's uh, Omac, who is uh, another me- who's going to be a member of the Authority, who ends up encountering Apollo, but again not named. This is there are many mistakes made here. Light Ray is an interesting character, but we're three issues in and we're not even done recruiting the team yet for a for for this for this for this. Uh, I don't know, this bad thing that's going to happen that Superman hasn't told readers yet. Superman, in this issue, gathers them all around the round table, explains to them what's going on, but we're not privy to that conversation. So this light ray seems to be like a depressed young woman, and she's confronted by Eclipso. Again, Eclipso is not named, but we know, you know, readers who know a, a purple crystal, it's Eclipso seems to kidnap light ray, Apollo investigates, and then he's attacked by Omak. As Omak asks, "What have you done with Leah?" By the way, Omak isn't named. I only know that's Omak because I had to Google it and I, ha- I looked at pictures. Again, all of this information isn't in the comic. This is, this is now. If this maybe as a trade, this will read better because there's nothing wrong about filling in the gaps. At, you know, I don't need to necessarily know who a character is immediately, but. This is something that we're three issues in now. Recruitment should be done or over with. Or if this was originally an eight issue or a 12 issue series, give it its 12 issues or, or, or give it give it something. But in any event, I say that I sound like I'm insulting this story. I'm not. I really, I enjoy this. I love this June Moon. I love the idea of June Moon being in control of her faculties, of being in control of both her halves, both her Enchantress side and her June Moon side. I really enjoy that. The, the, um, there's a, we get to the end and we see the villains show up that say, you know, Manchester Black is giving this great big speech about watch and learn. This is how it's done. We're the professionals. We are the authority. And of course, then he gets electrocuted and no, this, these other, the villains show up who again are not named. And I, I'm going to name them for people and, but they're not named in the story. And I think this is a problem. Uh, we have the Fleur de Lis. Uh, is one character. She's a white-haired, bulky woman. Uh, we have a black character called Coldcast. We have another white character with a mohawk called Iron Cross. And then we have Eclipso. 
and then a character called Siv, and they're all led by the Ultra Humanite. They're the bad guys. So we have a villain. We have a group of villains that we've never had been grouped before. They've ne- we've never. They don't actually even have a name, but I guess they've named themselves. They say we're the authority, which is kind of odd. I thought when it says Manchester Black says we are the authority, and then the bad guys show up and say no, we're the authority. I don't know. So I'm not sure if if they're if they're just being cocky or is is this sort of misdirection? <laughs> I'm I don't know we're having altercations between good guys and bad guys here and nobody knows. We we don't know what they're fighting about. What exactly are they fighting about exactly? Alter Humanite wants to kill Superman. Uh, please tell me it's more sophisticated than that. Uh, you know, Superman, Alter Humanite disguises himself as, as a uh, Mongol or pardon me, as uh, Solomon Grundy as a statue in Superman's Fortress of Solitude and attacks him in his Fortress of Solitude. And then Superman attacks, you know, who was revealed to be Ultra Humanite in, in the Fortress, but is ultimately defeated. And Ultra Humanite has this master plan of wanting to take over Superman's body, to put his mind in Superman's body. Seems like a rather simplistic plot, I guess. Not really sure. Together we will remake the world. I can't help but thinking that we're, this was a four-issue series about Ultra Humanite wanting to put his brain into an older Superman. That just seems kind of disappointing to me. I I have a feeling that this story was far more sophisticated and more at stake than just a, a talking gorilla wanting to switch brains with Superman. I just, <laughs> again, there, there's so much promise here. There's so much, there are some interesting ideas and high concept and time travel and Superman getting the round table from Camelot and talking to John F. Kennedy. There's some crazy Grant Morrison greatness here that Morrison lovers, I mean, this, there's a lot to like here if you're a fan of Grant Morrison. But I don't know if it's going to be hitting home for everyone. I'm still in for the ride, but I have to say I'm a, I'm a little bit I'm I'm disappointed. This is only going to be four issues, and we only got one issue left here. And I'm not sure that there's any way that this can be ended that that makes me satisfied. But we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, based on the pacing so far, I mean the story's barely barely fills a third over. Like you said, this needs to be twelve issues. I I can't believe it's only. And we, I, we said this after the second issue. We're like, this is only four issues and nothing's happened yet. Yeah. Two issues in. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, all right. Up next, this was a surprise for me. Titans United from writer Kevin Scott, Jose Luis on pencils, Jonas uh, Trindad on inks, Rex Locus on colors, Carlos Mingle on letters. And this was pretty fun. Uh, this felt very instantly classic and, and very Titans to me. Uh, but I'll let you go first, Rocky. What would you think of it? Um, yeah, I, I thought this was, um, I thought this was actually a little bit meh for me. I, this was, I actually, it doesn't surprise me. I, I, let me put it to you this way. Sorry. People are going to like this and people are going to like this because it takes no chances, no risks, and it's given people exactly what they want. That's exact. And, and for that reason, I think people are going to be generally satisfied with this. Uh, and, uh, cause it doesn't really, what this does and where people are going to be really happy with this is that this actually gives us the Titans that we won't, we're expecting to begin with. Titans Academy has been really sort of boring and dealing with the character motivations of young characters that nobody knows about. And we're finally getting a, 
We're finally getting the Titans we know and love. We're getting Nightwing, Donna Troy, Raven, Changeling, Starfire. And we're throwing in Red Hood and, of course, Connor Kent's Superboy. And we're getting them and we jump right into the action. There isn't a but there there isn't a hell of a lot of character work that's being done here, really. This is all character driven. You know, it starts off right away with a guy in the middle of his street suddenly getting all these powers. He gets heat vision and and then the suddenly Superboy comes in to save the day to protecting innocent lives from this guy who's who suddenly develops heat vision. And then suddenly there's an epic moment. Uh where, where all the Teen Titans, sh- the, the Titans together, they show up and they're, they're all, they're there to protect, you know, and Jason Todd is with them. And, and this issue is called Power Grab. Writer Kevin Scott does a pretty good job here of just sort of scripting a, a fairly plot driven, semi-interesting tale that, that involves this, these Titans, the Titans losing their powers. And this individual seems to be able to manifest powers from each individual titan and that the the tight the powers that each individual titan has from connor kent's flying ability to donna troy's to starfire star bolts they seem to be taken from them and and even uh changeling uh, the changeling's ability to change into an animal seems to be impacted and raven's ability to access her magic it all seems to be impacted this is very action-packed and uh very heavy-handed on the plot and there's good character moment. There, there is some character moments here between Raven and Changeling. Uh, Changeling, uh, you know, cracking some humor, flirting with Raven. Uh, there's moments between. Uh, there's some. Uh, there's the intentional tension between Connor and Jason Todd. Feels a little bit forced to me, but you know, I, I'll, I'll give credit to uh, writer Kevin Scott. He's, you know, uh, Jason Todd doesn't really he they're sort of doubling down on tease you know he, he's rubbing it in that connor is basically a clone and we're seeing this in suicide squad and i, I don't know where that's coming from I, I don't recall jason i don't recall connor ever you know people caring that connor kent was a was basically a glorified clone before but that seems to be a trope now that the writers are going with in this new era of of, of titans and suicide squad and what have you uh, even though we got technically Matt, we got two Superboys. One's Match, one's a clone of a clone, and we got the we got the normal clone Connor Kent, and we got the clone of a clone that's Match over in the pages of Suicide Squad by Amanda Waller. Uh, in any event, there's some decent character work here. The art by Jose Louis, Louis is is fantastic. Uh, the inks are uh, Jones Trimdale uh, uh, trim data trim data on the inks does a really good job complementing the pencils. Uh, Colors by uh, Rex Locus, very well done. Uh, the backgrounds are fantastic. There's th- this peop- this is this is the Titans ish the Titans adventures that I think people were hoping that they would get maybe much sooner than now. This is a long time coming, and DC is clearly advertising this. You'll note that at the beginning of each of the comic books this month, there's there's a full page advertisement for this particular series, Titans United number one. Clearly, DC wants this particular uh, comic book to succeed if you look at their marketing, because they're clearly marketing this more than they are on most of their other titles, at least from what I can see online and in the comic books themselves, which are always obviously a fairly obvious uh, clue in that regard. Um, 
plot-wise, I'm not really sure that the plot itself intrigues me all that much. They're losing their powers and their powers are fluctuating. So somebody's controlling them, but who we're not really sure. I'm not, I don't know, but I got to say the art's fantastic. It, it's, it captivated me. My eyes were glued to the page. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm definitely going to be picking this, picking this up. I'm, I'm really, you know, again, the, the story-wise, it doesn't intrigue me. There's, uh, uh, this this character that manifested these powers, I guess is is just uh, I guess he's a former he's a prisoner. So probably it's it's probably the old trope of prisoners being experimented on or some such thing. I don't know, but I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt here. This is just an opening issue, and it ends on a fairly interesting cliffhanger. People who watch the the series Titans, the the the, the DC streaming service Titans, Hawk and Dove do show up here. And they, it's kind of funny. I laughed because uh, uh, at one point Hawk calls calls the Titans for help because him and Dove need help fighting Kite Man. <laughs> Chuck Brown, who Kite Man, <laughs> and uh, Kite Man seems to be manifesting powers that I think are normally Dove's powers. And so clearly something's going on. With any member of the Titans seems to be having problems with their handling their superpowers. So you know. It's it's going to capture a lot of people's interests. I think it's you know it's the old it's the old idea of give fans what they want. You know, give them the Titans. That's what they want. Give them Titans. Give them fighting action packed. It just goes to show you you don't always need to be uh, necessarily have a have a genius plot. Just just give the fans what they want. Give them the characters, and that'll put a smile on their face. What do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. I mean, I think this has a lot to do with the fact there's a Titans TV show on right now. The fact that Titans Academy is, I mean, Titans Academy is not Teen Titans. It isn't anywhere close to being a Teen Titans story. Um, and so if you're a huge fan of the show and you're looking for something to, to read that reminds you of the show, you're going to have to go and read old stuff. There's not anything new on the stands that, that really feels like like Titans. And for fans of, you know, the, the Wolfman Perez stuff, the sort of the classic era of Titans, again, there's not really anything out there that, that reminds you of that. So it doesn't surprise me at all that DC is doing this. And, and they've done it in the past, right? I mean, we saw in DC Rebirth when they had the Titans and the Teen Titans, Titans by Adam Glass, um, which was the, the new characters, you know, Damien and Crush and whatnot. And, and, but you still had Wally West and Donna Troy and Nightwing and everybody in, in the Titans. So... It doesn't surprise me that we're we're getting this. Plus, the other thing is Kevin Scott is a, an up and coming uh, writer in comics. He's he's written novels before, and um, you know, so this is a good chance for him to to kind of get his feet wet. Um, where they know it's a finite series, it's not a, a huge risk for DC to, to go out on uh, on the uh, on the limb for a, for a new unknown writer. Um, and so, it doesn't surprise me that he's not trying to to reinvent the wheel here. This needs, just needs to to feel like a classic Titan story. And, and it does, there's a lot of action. Uh, when you look back on, on the most famous era of Titans, you know, again, the Wolfman Perez era, the characterization happens in the interactions between the characters that that's where it happens. And that's the way the characterization is fleshed out here. We're not getting quiet moments with characters. Um, you know, we're not, it's not a lot of talking heads. It's more, what are the the little one-liners or the, the little bits of characterization they can throw in in between all the action that's going on? And so I think Kevin Scott does a a great job of uh, of doing that. 
the other thing that DC's done to kind of take the pressure off him is, is like you said, the art is absolutely fantastic by Jose Luis. So when you do that, when you're giving uh, an up and coming writer, some, uh, an artist who's absolutely fantastic, it can really take the focus off the, the dialogue and the scripting in case there's any little wonkiness or uh, any places where the, the pacing of the story isn't quite as good as it could be. The, if you have fantastic art, it can help uh, distract from that. So uh, yeah, is this completely original? Is it you know groundbreaking? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. Does it feel classically Titans? Yes. Is it fantastic comic book art? Yes. Are there some really cool moments uh, and some really cool visual images? Yes. So uh, I haven't watched any of the Titans TV show, so I can't really speak to how much in tone it's similar to that. Um, but but it's interesting, and uh, and you did also made another good point. I wanted to touch on the fact that this is just the first issue. You know, there there may be places here where we think it's not as good as it could be. Uh, but again, Kevin Scott doesn't have the most experience writing comics, and writing a first issue is is one of the biggest challenges. So I'll be curious to see how much uh, it improves or uh, how much he seems to sort of settle in. Uh, maybe it's just a little bit of nerves in the first issue. So, yeah, all in all, I thought this was uh, enjoyable. So uh, I guess we'll see how it all plays out. All right, on to the last book of uh, the week that we're going to talk about. It's Wonder Woman number 779. This is from writers uh, Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, art by Travis Moore, colors by Tamara Bonvillon, uh, letters by Pat Brosso. Man, we have been I feel like we've been waiting forever for this afterworlds uh, story to finish and it and it finishes up here and I'll give credit to Conrad and Clunin for pulling a twist right at the end that I did not see. We thought that the the Janus of the past um was the one that was being taken advantage of. Turns out that he's been the, the sort of the puppet master all along. He's been the one sort of pulling strings. He knew if he released his uh, his other half that looked to the future that she would go out and, and wreak havoc. And that's sort of what he wanted um, all along because it felt like it, it gave him, it made him look good basically. And, and it, and it gave him uh, the ability to maybe have more control um, over, uh, over the world of, of the gods going forward, apparently. So it all made sense in the end. Do I think that this needed to take as long as it took? God, no, it should have been half as long as it was, you know, all those issues with them jumping through different dimensions. I guess it was supposed to be fun, but it never came across as fun to me. It came across more as, as tedious. Um, the Travis Moore art here is fantastic as, as all of his art has been throughout, but unfortunately he didn't draw every issue. So we got some inconsistency in art as well. And we still don't know how the heck Diana is going to return to the land of the living. So that is still to come as well. Um, and I still think Dead Man is a strange choice to co-star in a Wonder Woman book. He's been a pretty important part of the story. And I do like Dead Man, um, but it, he still feels a little bit out of place to me here. So overall, this story has been okay. I feel like it would have been a lot better had they sort of trimmed some of the fat on it, it would have made for a more compelling story. Um, and I also question why, like, is this a story you want to tell during the 80th anniversary of Wonder Woman? Because it doesn't really feel much like a 
traditional Wonder Woman story. And, and maybe that's a good thing. You know, Wonder Woman sales haven't been so great. So maybe you do need to mix it up uh, a little bit. But I don't know that this long, drawn out, protracted story was the way to go. So kind of a mixed bag for me um, overall. It had its moments. Uh, I think it did end on a high note. Um, but it's it's so hard to put aside the fact that it, it dragged, it felt interminable at times, like it was never going to end. Uh, and I think that tainted the overall uh, impression that I have of, of the story. So uh, I don't know, Rocky, what did you think? I, uh, yeah, you're, um, I'm going to really struggle with this because <laughs> I, I want to be, uh, I, I, I've reviewed more Wonder Woman comics than any other comic on my, on my site, and I, I would normally go on a Wonder Woman rant every every week because I'd rev- every month I'd go on a Wonder Woman rant, and I've been fairly hard on Wonder Woman for like years. And uh, this is this this does all the this makes all the mistakes that every writer's ever made that's ever written Wonder Woman, as far as I'm concerned. Wonder Woman here is pathetic. I, I there are so many things here that don't make sense, but it basically ends with Wonder Woman once again. Deciding, I mean, she even uses a she uses a needle at the end of this story to essentially sew up the two sides of Janice, because uh, you know we got the two sides of Janice, we got the female side of Janice who wants to dream about the future and create a future for herself where she controls everything, and then we got the past male version of Janice who does who's beholden to the past and doesn't want to he doesn't want he's he's not beholden to the future. So in other words, I suppose you could if you want. It's sort of like the difference between being very, very conservative. You don't want change versus you want you want to be more liberal and open up to ideas. There's liberal versus conservative dichotomy there if you really want to uh, go there, which of course we don't. But the, the symbolism is there. It's it's and and writers Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad are clearly making a statement here that you know Wonder Woman steps in and tries to show her wisdom. Uh, by saying, well, you know, of course, you've got to, you got to have both halves. You've got to, you got to, you got to ha- appreciate how far you've come by appreciating the past, and also look to the future with optimism. As opposed to, it's not either or. It's always about compromise, and you can read a lot into that. Which so the message there is good, but the simplicity of this storyline that's dragged on for ten issues, the idiocy of this, uh, the. the I mean, I'm sorry, but this is so crazy that we wasted 10 issues on this, on, on this Janice character. And for what? I mean, literally his, his master plan was, was that he figured that because Wonder Woman saw the horrors of progress firsthand, that she would side with him. That's actually what he thought. And, and Wonder Woman just, you know, knocks him out. And then, and then suddenly out of nowhere, the, 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 I mean, what do they call them? The 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 Norns or the pardon me the the. I mean, it's it's more mythological nonsense. They're called what are they called? They're called the the. Oh my yeah, God. I think you're right. I think they are called the Norns. The Norns, yeah. So they they sh- the Norns control the the strands of fate, and the, if they cut your strand, that means your 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 life story is is over or it will end, and of course. You know, uh, again, more mythological nonsense. They're gonna, you know, I don't. Where were the Norns at the beginning? I, 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 I guess they didn't want to show up. I, dead men went. That's the other thing. Wonder Woman uses this lasso that she got from the Valkyrie from issue three or issue two or three. She got 
this different mat, this different lasso. She actually uses this lasso. This lasso talks and tells Wonder Woman, command us to do something. And it commands her to, you know, ask us to revive dead man from the dead. Which, you know, again, another stupid idea. Dead man can die. Dead man was, was killed. Am I, am I underwhelmed by this? You know, who cares that dead man can die? Am I supposed to weep? He's already dead. And so she weaves, she revives dead man from the dead with her new lasso, brings him back from the dead. And, and there, there's a cost that might be paid by dead man by Boston brand that we don't know what it is. Whenever this lasso is used, we don't even know what it is. There's never been a cost for using this lasso. We, we don't, we don't know anything. Nobody has ever suffered an ill will of any kind from the very beginning. Wonder Woman's used this lasso numerous times. There's been no cost that's been paid by anybody, but everyone talks about, oh, there's a cost. There's a... How do we know that? That doesn't seem to be. It seems to be, uh, again, all these, all these disparate plot points. And, and for what? Just to get a bunch to Wonder Woman jump from place to place to place to place. And Phantom Zone, uh, Earth, what of eleven, uh, Rag Ragnarok, or or Valhalla, uh, Graveyard of the Gods, and now she ends up in this in this in between zone where 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 basically Dead Man was talking to her before, and and I'm wondering, you know, what's the point of all this? And Zeus shows up, all all the all the great all the gods show up in this in between zone. How did they get there? They can get there, and. And, you know, again, if the gods knew how to get there, why, why weren't they helping out? Are we just supposed to, we're supposed to just buy into this nonsense? Well, you know, the gods, that's just the way the gods are. And then Wonder Woman's so forgiving. Wonder Woman tells the Norns that not to kill Janice because she's going to keep an eye on Janice. Like, who are you kidding, Wonder Woman? You're, you, you're terrible at this. You don't keep an eye on anybody. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you're, you fail all the time. You failed in death metal. The entire universe had to be remade because, I mean, I mean, let's be blunt. I mean, it, 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 you don't exactly have a stellar track record. What, what record are the gods looking at here? I don't, I don't get this. And you know, and I, and and this is the this is the frustrating aspect of writers. And I know I'm on a rant here, but just bear with me because I'm going somewhere with this. Because Wonder Woman is always somebody that she's always forgiving. She's always supplicating herself. She's always putting herself out there. And she's saying, well, let's forgive. Let's give another chance. I mean, what exactly does Janice have to do to get her on Wonder Woman's bad side? Apparently, extermination isn't enough. Destruction isn't enough. Murder isn't enough. Genocide's not enough. What is it going to take, Wonder Woman, for any villain to get on your bad side where you think, maybe, just maybe, let the Norns cut the strand? I mean, come on. This is, this is why I don't have respect for this Wonder Woman. If you, if, if you blindly, there's no difference in being filled with blind hate than blind forgiveness of absolutely everything. And maybe I'm, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe I just, I, I'm saying more about myself when I say that. I'm just saying this Wonder Woman that forgives everything. What happened to the Wonder Woman that snapped Maxwell Lord's neck? Come on. Don't tell me that woman, Wonder Woman is, is, is going to lose sleep over cutting a strand over a genocidal psychopathic maniac like Janice. And it's just, you know, and she's, but instead she takes this, she takes the needle that Zeus gave Siegfried and s literally sews the gods together, sews them back together again. And I realize that this is a, a tale of mythology, that this is all symbolic stuff, but this is exactly why Wonder Woman comics don't sell. This is exactly why. This is nonsense. This is stupidity.
This is Wonder Woman, uh, Wonder Woman letting horrible, horrible, not only horrible people, horrible godlike entities with godlike power get away with it. And, and they literally, they get away with it. And, and that's what I hate about this. And then it ends with a stoop, with the stupid squirrels, with this ratatosta squirrel telling other squirrels about the tale of Wonder Woman. I mean, I, this is, this is coming off of death metal. I don't care about squirrels talking to squirrels. Like, this is so frustrating. Like, I want a story about, I wanted this to be about Wonder Woman actually having done something useful having come out of death metal, but instead we got all this. And again, we got some good moments in the, in the first two or three issues. They were decent stories with Ragnarok meeting Thor and thirst, 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 thirsty Thursday and celebration with the, with the Valkyrie. Fine. But God, this has been overkill. And it's just, it's frustrating as hell to me that I, I'm so glad this is over, but for God's sakes, they say next is Diana's return. I sure as hell hope so. I really do. But uh, sorry, man. Yeah, I, how long? How, how many issues? How many issues do you think it's going to take her to get back to her? <laughs> I don't know, but I don't know. Five, but it's uh, I, I, I've, I, I don't even know. I don't even know if is is Becky Cloonan and Michael Connor are they still on the title next issue? I don't even know. Uh, yeah, but, I think I'm pretty sure they are. But I mean, uh, I, I will just make this comment that I, uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad also did the uh, Midnighter. Uh, backup series, which I'm not a fan of. I think that was w the worst of the backups. And uh, their their Wonder Woman hair is dragged on forever. I th they don't inspire a lot of confidence in me. Um, I I think that of all the the trinity of all the DC characters right now, the one that is in the the worst stages right now. I don't like how Wonder Girl's being written by Joelle Jones. I'm really worried about it. I think this Wonder Woman is is definitely off to the wrong. It's off is on is in is not in great hands right now I, this is directionless wonder girl seems to be directionless uh maybe i'm hoping nubia uh uh queen nubia though she's getting her uh, limited series coming out i hope that's going to be better but at this point amazons are not in good hands in the dc universe and and i'm loving the general direction of the dc universe right now generally speaking you and i both are but personally i'm i'm really worried about the direction of any amazon right now as they are currently being written well, again, we talked a lot about how we felt like they were taking Wonder Woman off the table to give the uh, Wonder Girl series a chance to shine. And it's been plagued by delays and we've only gotten three issues and they haven't been very good. We haven't gotten any of Nubia. And now Diana's back. And if you read the solicitation for number 780, which is the next issue of Wonder Woman, after the events of Death Metal, Diana finally makes it back from her unforgettable <laughs> odyssey through the sphere of the gods unforgettable i yes you're right it was seared into our brains because it lasted forever but my point being the whole reason they took her off the table it seemed like to us was to give these other iterations of wonder woman a chance to shine and that didn't happen they yeah. completely dropped the ball right so let me read the rest of the solicitation uh you know after the events of death metals diana finally makes it back unforgettable odyssey through sphere of the gods has the world moved on without her this special oversized story paves the way to an exciting new future for the greatest hero of them all. That tells us absolutely nothing about what's actually coming up next in, oh. in Wonder Woman. But I will say this. I will say this. Uh, before that next issue of, of Wonder Woman comes out, we have a hell of a lot of Wonder Woman coming. Like, a lot. Uh, 
I think, is it next week? Yeah, next week there's Wonder Woman Against Peace, Volume 1, Trade Paperback, which is the Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor uh, series. Uh, yeah. Then after that, the the following week, we have the uh, the Wonderful Woman of the World graphic novel. And, the, uh, and I think we also have... Um, Oh yeah, the following week after that, the first week of October, we have the Wonder Woman 80th anniversary 100-page super spectacular as well uh as the Sensational Wonder Woman trade paperback which collects the um the digital series that um Stephanie Phillips has been uh, has been writing which I admit I haven't I haven't read. So there's a lot of Wonder Woman stuff coming up um you know between between now and then. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'm going to go over right now some of the other uh, titles and collections this week, uh, as well as a couple other books that we actually didn't talk about. Uh, and that includes, a, a, the, uh, I'll start with it, Wonder Woman, the Amazonian uh, Warrior. It's the 80 years of the Amazon Warrior Deluxe Edition hardcover, which we got one for Batman and we got one for Superman. And basically it's, it's a hardcover collection that collects some of the most famous Wonder Woman stories. So they're, they're definitely pushing a lot of Wonder Woman stuff out right now as we celebrate her 80th anniversary. But I think you have to start with her regular series being good. And right now it's, it's not, and I don't, it's hard to understand exactly what DC is doing with her because again, it felt like they took her off the page and were telling this story of her, you know, off of, off of earth to give a chance for other Wonder Woman family stuff to shine. And they, I feel like they didn't take advantage of it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I just, I just hope that if we get all these, I, I am looking forward to Stephanie Phillips. She has a series coming out for Wonder Woman. I'm looking forward to that uh, because I, she's been a writer that's impressed me with uh, Harley Quinn and some of her indie work. And, uh, but I mean, again, where does Wonder Woman Diana lie in the context of this looming threat of dark side? We just finished Infinite Frontier. I mean, as a longtime DC reader, I want Wonder Woman to shine. And uh, so far, it's just it's it's really, really depressing to see how how frankly badly her character is being handled with these stories that really it's so obvious that Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, it's so obvious that they were told to just take her off the playing field and write some nonsense. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, I mean, they, don't get me wrong. They entertained us along the way a little bit and there was some humor, but, but it was absolutely a waste of, it was, it, 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 it was a disappointing 10 issues to be sure in my mind. Yeah, it was. And the argument could be made that DC's never known how to properly handle Wonder Woman or have, have her written. I mean, yeah, Captain Marvel you know, Carol Danvers, she's been around not even half as long as Wonder Woman and Black Widow said the same. Um, the Black Woman, Black Widow may be a little longer, um, but the argument can be made that they're both handled so much better and they're written with agency and they're, they're interesting characters. And Wonder Woman who has been around so much longer and is a worldwide icon. Can't they just can't seem to get it right. So uh, another thing I wanted to mention, we covered last week Justice League number 67, although not exactly fans of it. Uh, it actually didn't come out last week. It comes out this week. So if you're <laughs> curious why we didn't talk about it, go back to last week's episode. You can uh, you can listen to it there. Uh, let's see. What else do we have? We have uh, Harley Quinn, the animated series, the Eat, Bang, Kill Tour, which is written by T. Franklin. I think that's a, uh, a digital series. Well, the, the first however many episodes are being collected now, so... 
that'll be out in print as well. Batman, the animated adventures continue season two, number four, that is out uh, challenge of the super sons. Number six with uh, John Kent before he was aged up and Damian Wayne. That is also a digital series that uh, the latest collection of that is out. The Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries number six is also coming out this week. Batman, the world hardcover, which has an awesome um, cover by uh, Lee Bermejo. And that basically is a 160 page book that features stories um, from around the globe that uh, uh, feature Batman. Uh, I think a lot of them are reprints. So that is coming out. Batman Volume 4, The Cowardly Lot, which is basically the most recent uh, uh, hardcover uh, collecting the current Batman series. We've got Unearthed, which is a Jessica Cruz story uh, graphic novel. We've got Batman Black and White hardcover, which collects the most recent Black and White series. We have the, the Wonder Woman hardcover I mentioned. Superman and Lois, the 25th Wedding Anniversary Deluxe Edition hardcover, collects the... Uh, all that stuff that came out around that time in the Triangle era when Superman and Lois got married. There's a Jack Kirby Fourth World Omnibus collecting all of Jack Kirby's Fourth World uh, work all in one volume. Then we've got uh, Batman His Greatest Mysteries trade paperback because uh, there's never enough Batman. So uh, a few other books if you're a DC fan that you might want to be on uh, the lookout for this week. So uh, anything else you have coming up this week that you want to plug, Rocky? Uh well, I'm still, now that uh, I'm finally done my thumbnails for my, I'm going to be doing a review on Infinite uh, Frontier, uh, the, the digital series, as well as leading all the first six issues of Infinite Frontier and my theories as to where we're headed into 2022 for the DC crisis. I should be able to finally get that out this week. <laughs> yeah, we have our, our usual new comic Wednesday coming out. Um, I, I just haven't had much time to do much of anything else right now. So look forward to that. Uh, but we're we're going to start dumping some uh, some new episodes for, for for all our other projects that we have going on that we've been uh, neglecting. Uh, we're starting to ramp back up, so get ready for all that. So again, Rocky and I want to thank everybody for joining us. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on the audio only, be sure you head over to YouTube, give this video a like. Be sure you subscribe to the Comic Boom! Exclamation point, uh, channel so you know when Rocky puts out new uh, new episodes and new content. Just ring that notification bell so you get that uh, notification in your inbox. Likewise, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to be sure you don't miss any of that upcoming content or creator-owned interviews or what have you that we do, be sure you go over to your favorite podcast app or platform and subscribe to the Comic Source. We're uh, available everywhere. Uh, podcasts are available. Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Apple Podcasts, all that uh, kind of good stuff. So. Uh, once again, we want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. See you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. 
All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.